0: Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline.
1: And I'm your co-host, David.
0: And welcome to this week's main episode. Um, I guess we start with housekeeping. I have been told that just because I wrote the book and it came out doesn't mean I stopped promoting the book. That's what it is.
1: Oh, you have to keep promoting the I book? I have to
0: keep promoting the book.
1: I, you know, because I was looking at all that graffiti stuff on TikTok. Yes. I downloaded TikTok just to look at all the writers, which is cool. Yeah. Uh... I saw your ticket, and it's just book promotion now, it seems like. No! I Like, I don't, because I don't use the thing. So I signed into the thing, and it was like 40 of you things.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry to do that to you. But no, it is not just... Per- but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read some review... I'm going to read one Ooh, review yeah, of the book right now. Um, I got a bad review of the book, which I did make a TikTok about, that I thought was really funny. Um, So if you follow me on TikTok, you probably saw... Uh, the one-star review I got, which just... Is
1: this on, like, Amazon or something? No,
0: this was on Goodreads, I believe. Um, So let me see if I can find the one-star to read it here, too. I'm a big fan of that. Oh, no, it was on Amazon. The five—the one-star was on Amazon. Um, Okay, let me see what I can find here that's a good review.
1: Da, da, da. A good bad review?
0: No, a good review. Oh, a
1: good review, okay.
0: A good review... Or should I just do the bad one?
1: No, let's... We need, uh, balance.
0: Some balance. Okay. Somebody says, What can I say? This was so refreshing and raw to read. I'll be shoving this book down so many people's throat at any chance I get.
1: I assume it's going to be on a lot of people's... What's the next big holiday? I guess it... I mean, it technically is Lunar New Year, Chinese New Year. I want
0: Valentine's Day. I want you to give this book to someone you love.
1: That will make for a great evening.
0: Right? The first chapter is about how someone I love died.
1: I'm sure people will love hearing about that. That is so yeah.
0: romantic. And, that's... You
1: know, just with some flowers and chocolates.
0: Yeah, I think that's going to be really, really sweet and set a romantic tone. Okay, let me see if I can find the one-star review. Here it is. This is from JK. If you see yourself as a victim, this author is for you. Wages too low, the man is stealing from you. Not enough education, the system is rigged against you. If you like to imagine that your position in life is forced upon you and is not in your control, Pendleton's book will be your favorite read.
1: That's why it's my favorite read, yeah. obviously.
0: Obviously, yes. Um, but I liked this because I'm like, yes, all things are systemic and we actually have very little agency. Um, So I appreciated that. So yes, so I am still promoting the book apparently. I'm sorry guys, I Survived Capitalism All I Got Was This Lousy T-Shirt. Check it out if those reviews swayed you at all.
1: Wait, did we mention uh, apparently the strike at Powell's or the, all of the stuff going on there it, uh, has passed and they yes. got their contract? Yes, and, as but, of December. But you can still buy through the link that we posted on Patreon and it will support their strike fund still.
0: Yes, speaking of Patreon, if you're not a member of our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash pick me scared. Three bucks a month. We do two bonus episodes. We just uploaded the bonus episode that's like the... Uh, kind of addendum to this week's episode. I
1: feel like it's the prequel.
0: It's a kind of a prequel. Yeah, that's true. And it is about a man named Cecil Rhodes, which is relevant because today's episode is about Rhodesia.
1: His namesake.
0: His namesake. His baby. His terrible racist baby. Yeah. Yeah. So this week's main episode will be about Rhodesia. And the reason I want to do this episode, David, I know you're not on Twitter, But have you seen, since you downloaded TikTok again, maybe you've been targeted with this, the IDF ads that are just, like, hot girls with guns? I
1: I saw those, like, a a couple years ago. And I think, actually, those targeted ads were the thing that made me, like, delete TikTok initially. Because I was like, this is... Culture's gone too far. We need to end it now.
0: Yes. No, it's really... They're disturbing ads. So they'll literally just be, like ads with, like, hot girls in military fatigues being like, mm, look how hot I am. And then it's like, when you're mean to the IDF, this is who you're mean to. Kissy face, hot girl. And a lot of people on Twitter have been likening them to these old ads for Rhodesia. Yeah. And, it, like, this is why I want to do an episode about Rhodesia, because, one, colonization playbooks, always the same.
1: It's They have one playbook. They
0: have one playbook. It's like, Get the military in there, get some hot girls holding guns, some hot white women holding guns, you know, and, you know, put some settlers in there and tell them that they can farm and they're going to get land. And that's it. And so seeing these ads with the IDF and then seeing people post them side by side with old ads from Rhodesia from the 60s and 70s that basically employed the same technique, like, come to Rhodesia, hot white women have guns, Uh." Um, was really, like, jarring to me and I realized that there's, like, a lot of reasons to talk about Rhodesia um, because it's popped back up in the past five years or so in popular culture because it's something the white supremacists are now obsessed with.
1: Yeah, I mentioned on the Patreon that I know Dylan Roof had, like, a Rhodesian flag prominently displayed in a lot of his social media, which is, you know, Dylan Roof famously a mass shooter.
0: Yes, a yeah. racist mass shooter. So, there's a lot of reasons to talk about Rhodesia. There's a lot we can learn uh about Rhodesia, so I thought that yeah, today's episode should be all about the failed colonial state, the failed uh, empire of Britain right in in Africa, in the southern region of Africa. Uh, Yeah, it's called Rhodesia, after that guy Cecil Rhodes. So uh, what do you know about Rhodesia, David?
1: I knew that it was sort of like a kind of vestigial British colony that kind of extended past British colonization period.
0: Like USA style.
1: Yeah, like where it was like, we declare independence in order to be more racist. Um,
0: Then the British Empire, which you got to be so racist to be like, they're not letting us be racist enough here.
1: And I knew a friend of mine is a big gun collector and as a consequence of which has a lot of old issues of guns and ammo. And there are advertisements for like, come be private security, come be a mercenary in Rhodesia.
0: Yeah, the Rhodesia advertising campaigns through the 60s and 70s were really intense. They were just like, basically the vibe you got from looking at the ads is like, first of all, it's sunny and beautiful here. You're going to get a tan. Second of all, all the women are blonde. White women with blonde hair. Uh, Third of all, you just get to shoot people constantly. Just whatever you you got an urge to shoot someone, you can shoot someone here. It's Rhodesia.
1: That seems probably accurate
0: yeah it's kind of like if you were advertising for a dystopian miami florida that wasn't on the beach
1: i mean honestly the product sells itself
0: (laughs) rhodesia (laughs) the land of opportunity uh where you can shoot somebody so what do you know though about like when rhodesia came to be on our
1: earth it's like the the, what 60s um
0: so kind of it's actually more interesting um because 1965 is when they were officially like, fuck you, England, we're doing our own thing. Blah. But they actually existed for a really long time because we talked about on the bonus episode, if you listened, to that guy, Cecil Rhodes, real bad guy, um, he was down in Africa in the 1800s. Yeah. And that's really where Rhodesia got its start, is in the 1800s. So Rhodesia is this area that's like 150,000 square miles. It's pretty big. Or uh, if you are not American, it's 390,000 square kilometers. It's in Africa, and it's uh, bordered by Zambia, Botswana, and Mozambique.
1: And we should... Am am I correct in understanding that we should think Zimbabwe?
0: Yes. Yeah. It is now present-day Zimbabwe Zimbabwe and Zambia. Okay. Depending on the region. So basically what we're going to get into that's a little bit confusing is before 1965, there was actually northern Rhodesia, Zambia, and southern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. Okay. But um, northern... Northern Rhodesia decolonized before Southern Rhodesia did, and Southern Rhodesia at that point just became what we call Rhodesia in 1965, and that's how we think of it in our heads, and yes, it is now Zimbabwe. Okay. So, in 1973, for reference, the population of Rhodesia was 6 million people, and 5.7 million of them were black Africans. So, Uh, the overwhelming majority. Huge, huge majority, and... 271,000 people there were Europeans, but the Europeans had total control of the country. Like yeah. when I say total control, total control. And 19,000 people were of mixed race, and 10,000 people were Asian. So this is kind of the demographic makeup. Another thing to know about Rhodesia is that uh, it had a lot of natural resources. So we're talking copper, we're talking chrome, we're talking iron, uh, tin, nickel, gold. We're even talking asbestos, which back in the '60s and '70s was a major—that was a big material. deal. It was yeah. a huge deal. Obviously now you don't want asbestos; it'll kill you. But we didn't know it was killing people in the '60s and '70s. So, it's also a really great temperate climate for agriculture, especially if you're trying to grow tobacco.
1: That makes sense.
0: So resource-riched, it was landlocked, but you know, still you you had a lot of resources, and it's a topographically flat, has some gentle rolling planes, just really easy to grow on, really easy to build on and develop. So you can see from hearing this why it might be like a target, targeted as an asset by empire, by colonial powers. Yeah. And it really, really was. So if you listen to our kind of bonus episode about Cecil Rhodes over on our Patreon, you'll know that By 1888, 1889, this guy's got his sights set on this. He's a business developer. And he goes to the Queen of England. And he's like, I've got an exciting new business deal that the Crown can back me on. So in October 1889, Cecil Rhodes founds a company, the British South Africa Company. It's officially incorporated. And it's a mercantile company based in London. And it is under a royal charter, which basically just means it's got a special relationship with the government of Britain of England so Africa at this time had been actively colonized throughout the 1800s But the 1880s started something that white Western countries now call the scramble for Africa. And
1: this is where they all sort of like picked a starting point and went inward, right?
0: Correct. Yes. And we see some like weird competition, but also cooperation amongst white European countries for how they would carve up Africa, basically. Uh, And we talked about this in the bonus episode as well. But this divide and conquer technique is something that we see repeated in colonization and empire around the globe well into the 20th century as well um this is something when we talk about korea we talk about vietnam we talk about indonesia this is something yeah you know it's just stereotypical colonization the
1: philippines somewhat the, famously yes the yeah.
0: philippines this is what we do so around this time you know throughout the 1800s Empires had been going to Africa to extract resources, but by the 1880s, it was almost like frantic. Like all of these different white Western European countries were like, How do we get into Africa? Ah!" And they all start like fighting with each other over it. So, in this scramble for Africa, uh, we've got, yeah, the British South Africa Company. And their goal was to acquire and exercise commercial and administrative rights in South Central Africa. And that administrative rights sounds Kind of, you know, not benign. No, I mean, it,
1: no. It sounds like they basically just want to rule the country. Yes. Uh, as a settler colonialist state.
0: That is exactly what yeah. that means. This is this company has been created as a tool of colonization, and there's no other way to think about this. And you have to remember, we're coming off of at this time the British East India Company, which was created to colonize India from 1600 to 1874. So, David, do you? What do you? Do you want to talk about the British East India Company I mean, for reference?
1: I know what I know from my history class. It was a company that basically colonized India on behalf of the British government.
0: Exactly, so this had wrapped up 1874. We're in 1889, just 15 years later, right? And when we talk about the British colonizing India, which is something we do talk about, we do really need to understand that it was through this company that the colonization happened. And this corresponded with Adam Smith's theory of capitalism coming about during this time, the 1700s, right? And the British East India Company is responsible for a minimum of 40 million deaths in India.
1: This is, okay, so this is the second time we've talked about, that. you mentioned Adam Smith once on the Patreon and once here. And it's something that I always think, like, I always have to mention, like, he thought of himself partially as an economist, like doing political economy. He also thought of himself as a moral philosopher, and he thought capitalism would make everyone equal. And he uses the example of the price tag, you know, this thing, right? Like yeah. you don't you don't barter for something which means that everyone gets the same price. Right. And it's like such a naive, dumb idea. Yeah. Um, like where you're just like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, like,
0: capitalism good because price tag. But then you're like, what happens when all the companies get together and set the prices and there's price fixing and the price tag is way more than people can afford because capitalism has encouraged monopolization and for companies to all agree also to underpay workers? And what happened then?
1: Or, or on the other side, when the price tag is aggressively low right. and the people who take the loss are The workers. workers,
0: exactly. Right. So this is all happening around the same time. You know, the British East India Company is just so evil beyond evil we talk about everything bad that happened in india at the hands of the british it's this company and one of the biggest reasons they're responsible for at least 40 million deaths is that they replaced the crops that had been supporting the population of india with these high cash yielding crops instead that they could profit from and so the crops weren't going to feed people they were going to make british white guys rich And this created a massive famine that killed a lot of people.
1: Which they also did in, well, not the British East India Company, but like British companies also did in Ireland. Like wherever there is colonization, sustaining crops, like food that has sustained people often for time immemorial. Yeah gets replaced by cash
0: crops. Right, and it destroys the local ecology. Yeah. And it does not feed people, yes. Um, other estimates say the British presence in India on the whole was responsible for something like 100 million deaths.
1: So, like basically mass murder.
0: Mass, mass, mass murder. So really this technique of uh, creating these companies to do colonization, it has staggering implications, both in terms of building wealth for England and in destroying these countries and murdering millions of innocent people. And this is the model really uh, that's important when we talk about the British South Africa Company. This is what England is like, well, this was a success. Let's do it in Africa now. So really, really sinister vibes. And uh, this is just a not so fun fact, the first Indian word that entered the English language was actually loot because the British people were looting so much.
1: Uh, so Indiana. it was just like you were carrying off some someone's property and you just have kept hearing this word in the background, loot, and you were like, oh, that's... Yeah,
0: what that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm looting, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is the context we need to have for the British South Africa Company being founded by Cecil Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes goes to the Queen and is like, I have a proposition for you. Let's do something like the British East India Company, but let's do it in Africa, and it's going to be the British South Africa Company. So again, just 15 years after the British East India Company has dissolved, and we see, yeah, British merchants are thinking, let's do the same thing, let's make some money. And it gets approved. The Queen is like, love it, great idea, let's do the India thing in South Africa. Terrifying, right, implications. And they grant an initial charter for 25 years, set to expire in 1914. And we're going to talk about what that means to have the charter in a few minutes here. So, the British South Africa Company gets to work colonizing South Africa, and they're like, yes, we're going to exploit this region for gold, for copper, for coal deposits.
1: For asbestos.
0: For asbestos. (laughs) To build all of your ceiling tiles that your heart desires in your mid-century homes in 50 years. So the way that the colonization company charters work is like this. The company agrees to build infrastructure in this colonized land, in this case South Africa, under the guiding principles of modern capitalism. So this isn't infrastructure that necessarily benefits the people living there. Or that they're asking for or that would help them.
1: It's uh, infrastructure that benefits stockholders or shareholders.
0: Exactly. So we're talking things like railways, roads, uh, seaports, anything that facilitates commerce and allows for the rapid industrialization or agricultural developments that lead to things like those high yield crops, for example. Also, this might mean building mines to extract natural resources from the earth. So since the company is paying for all of this, there is no financial burden on the British taxpayer. Yeah. So the the monarchy loves this. They're like, "This is great. Yeah, you pay to do it all," um, but that means the monarchy, the the government of England, has to give something back to these companies. So, unlike just a regular company doing business, these colonization companies get these like massive privileges basically they're permitted to establish political administrations they're permitted to just kind of govern as well as do business
1: this seems like the free market to me this is what when i think of the free market i think of having like an actual prerogative from like a giant military power to do whatever the fuck you want
0: yeah very free yeah very very free um yeah so would you include a paramilitary police force then in your definition of a free market
1: the freest of markets have paramilitary forces backing them
0: forcing people to do uh the company bidding so this would be accurate yes because just like you're permitted as a company then to establish political administration and govern people in the places you are colonizing you're also allowed to have your own company paramilitary police force
1: yeah Your own homegrown African Pinkertons, basically.
0: Basically. So, the way to think about this as an American is imagine Amazon runs out of cardboard boxes, the company, and they need those sweet, sweet cardboard boxes to ship all your orders in, and you live next to a big forest. Okay? Let's say you live next to a big forest in Canada.
1: I, yeah, I mean, what, what, where left? Oh, you know, actually, I went to college in one of the largest rainforests in North America.
0: I've been, I've been to that yeah. forest. Beautiful. So this would be like you're just chilling at your house by this forest in Canada, a totally different country than where this company is based. And Amazon has its own Amazon army. Uh, imagine the delivery drivers, but they've got machine guns. Don't give Jeff
1: Bezos ideas.
0: I know. They come to your town, and they're like this forest. Hours. Uh, you disagree, we shoot you. Uh, Amazon runs this town now, baby. And guess what? You're now an Amazon citizen. And you're like, how are you even here? I don't understand what's happening. And, like, just to imagine the indignity and confusion of being murdered by the equivalent of a Fortune 500 company from a different company, they're a different country, just their private military force? Like, their security guards? I mean, and like taking over your town?
1: Is the history of, like, all colonialism. It's, you know-
0: It is- this is what they're dealing with so yeah this is a good way if you can't like quite imagine how this would go down it goes down exactly like that and it is as ridiculous as it sounds and horrifying literally imagine if the target security guards were armed and they shot you in the head if you lived next to something target wanted and you just had to deal with that
1: for some reason that's not that hard for me to imagine it's really not unfortunately yeah yeah
0: so this is what's going on so These companies then take on the task of building the infrastructure because they have this opportunity to extract profit in a few different ways. The first way would be just like commercially through selling things, right? So like, let's say you're like, well, I built a mine and I found a bunch of copper, so I'm selling the copper, so I'm making money. Um, Also, though, they can rent out land that they steal once they get there. You get there and you're like, I own all this land now. And the people living there are like, my house is there. And you're just like, "Mm, no, because I've got super Amazon uh, task force here, police armed with the ak 47 so I'm pretty sure it's our land now. And then your buddy can come from Target, right? Target shows up and they're like, oh, you got some resources down here? Can we get in? And then they're like, turn around and go, yeah, Target, we'll rent you this land for... I don't know, like four grand a month and then they make money off it.
1: And like the person who originally had the land could presumably rent it, but they would be competing with the target guy.
0: Exactly. Right. So it's just not real realistic for them. Um they also make money because they can receive royalties on the mining of minerals. So you can be like, You can rent this land, but if you if you mine anything and, and you find stuff, you gotta pay us a kickback. Yeah. Because that's our land. Uh you could also make money by levying customs duties. Even like if you want to bring something in here, customs charges.
1: And this is a private company again. again we, private just have, company. we just have to I just want to continue to emphasize that basically the private company is
0: levying taxes. Yeah, this is this is Starbucks. This yeah. is Amazon. This is Target. Uh stealing your land, renting it out to people, having a military force, a police having your own police department, and then yeah, levying taxes. And you can collect all sorts of taxes and fees. These aren't the only customs duties are just one type of tax and fees you could you could collect. So in return, the British government guarantees you a monopoly on business in the land.
1: Again, the free market. The
0: free market. Very, very free. Yeah. No, actually, the government is like, we won't let anyone compete with you there. And if anybody challenges it, we'll just send in our military to back you up. So it's like, okay, well, let's say somebody shows up and tries to compete with your special target or Amazon or Starbucks police force. This would be like the U.S. being like, we're going to send our military in to back them up.
1: The second, I mean, I'm not... How do I say this?
0: It's, it's not
1: like this doesn't ha- ha- It's not like the cops don't show up.
0: To protect property and business. This is what cops yeah. do. Yes. So this is just a more explicit and direct understanding of it. And the only thing that's different is we're exporting it. We're yeah. like that thing that happens under capitalism here. We're going to go do that in other countries, too where we have no actual sovereignty whatsoever. We're just going to go in and do it there.
1: Yeah, you know, one thing I do know is that that sort of road, that sort of, like, network goes both ways, that a lot of the sort of procedures of colonialism and colonial rule get imported back to, like, the colonial metropole. That's true. Right? Like, a lot of the tactics used by, like, paramilitary forces abroad become tactics used by like for example the american police
0: force yes our military does train our police that is totally true and this um, military that this government would use to back whatever company they grant these like exclusive rights to this monopoly to to go colonize another country that military might be used against the locals there who are like we don't want to be colonized uh if the police force can't handle it the country who sent them there their military will just show up or they might use it against other countries. If yeah. another country's like, no, that's our land, then you're like, No, it's ours and our military is gonna fight yours in and a war.
1: so specifically other colonial powers is what you're talking about. Yes. Right, yes. so other if like Germany powers. like I just wanna be clear that, that it's not like oh Zambia is making a claim here. It's Germany.
0: Well, it could be the locals. Yeah. Yes, it could be, for example, Zambia being like, "No, this is our land. Go away." And you're like, "Our military will fight you. We decided it's our land." But yeah, it could just be like your neighbor. It could be another white Western imperial power being like, "Oh, we wanted Zambia though," and then you're like, "We'll fight you for Zambia." Ah. And then the people in Zambia are like, "What the fuck is going on? Could you leave us alone, please?" And this is like again what we saw happen kind of in Korea, in Vietnam, you know. In this is
1: okay. This is forgive me. if This is the most fucked up way I can think of this is that European colonial powers treated Africa like the worst, most violent form of a like white elephant gift exchange. Yes. Right? No,
0: this is true. Yes, they're just like, mine now, I like it. Oh, I see what you have there. I want it. Go get something else for yourself. This is so true. So, it really is just so violent and absurd and it's like you want to say it's absurd because it is absurd, but you can't say it's comical because it is so violent and disturbing. And you know, how can you make light of something that like in India killed a hundred million people? Yeah. No, it's just it's something you wish you could laugh at, but the fact that it's so ridiculous and it is effective as a tool to completely destroy, you know, local communities and murder entire populations of people, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. So It's just really this ungodly union of business and state operating together in terrifying ways that challenge yes the sovereignty of any foreign nation that happens to have a resource that you want it's a commercial invasion is the best way to think about it and it is yes backed by the military of usually one of the world's largest superpowers and it's a totally illegal thing to do it's an illegal occupation so when this happens local governments have two choices their choices are submit and hope for the best or try to fight back against usually the world's most powerful armies. And this is a really, really hard decision that people have to make. So, the results of companies like this, you know, coming in, the British South Africa Company going into South Africa and being like, we're, we're here to do business, knock, knock, open up, uh, is, yeah, an illegal conquest of the southern region of Africa by British capitalists, where everything in the land, Cattle, minerals, human beings capable of laboring, the land itself is all ultimately going to be seized and controlled by British businessmen. Yeah. So this gets us to 1890. This is the year after the company is officially created. And they enter into that charter with the British government, where the British government is like, not only can you create this company, we have your back so hard, nobody can compete with you, and our military will back you if things get tricky.
1: This is like, I don't, I don't know, if you're at the store and you're buying, like, I don't think Yorkshire Gold is like this, but if you buy, like, fancy British tea, it'll be like, a char- with a charter from the British crown or whatever.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. I don't drink tea. Oh, well. Terrifying.
1: It's, it, and, like, at the Britain sells itself as kind of twee.
0: It really does, and it well, needs to be stopped.
1: And, and like...
0: They are so violent, and there is nothing cute about the British.
1: It's one of those things where you're like, oh, this is, like... When you see the tea, and it's in this little fancy package, and you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of want, like, the twee tea. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. Um, But then, like, you, th- you think what that charter actually meant... Also, in the case of tea, yes. let's just throw that out yes. there. Um, you're like, oh, I don't know.
0: it meant it meant hyper militarized violence and death and murder. Yeah. So,
1: 1890
0: to 1897 is when this company officially gets their start. British South Africa Company. They get the green light from Mommy England, and they're like, we're going in. So they come up with this plan, basically to invade the southern part of Africa. So, in 1890, there are two regions, and they're named by the British people. These aren't what the people there call the regions. But the British identify these regions, and they call them Mashana Land and Matebele Land.
1: Where are those names from?
0: Um, So, these names come from... I'm not sure what the Mashana Land... uh, Like, the Mashana Land one, I'm not sure where that comes from. But the Matebele Land is based off the name of people who do live in the region, some people. So... They're like, we're going to take over these two regions and more, but these two regions are kind of strategic in how they're going to seize control over a major area in the southern part of Africa. So the British South Africa Company starts their invasion. They set their sights first on a region in northeastern Zimbabwe, and this was home of the Shona people. So this is where we get Moshona land. And this is a Bantu-speaking group of people who were subsistence farmers just living in villages raising cattle. Yeah. Right? So... They're like, we're going to go and we're going to take that area over. And they're probably not going to get much pushback because these are, like I said, subsistence farmers. They're like, we just like farm here to support ourselves. We got our little houses. Like they're probably living a pretty chill and happy life. But the British come in under this company and they're like, okay, we're going to invade. And they call themselves pioneers.
1: This is something that like as you were talking, I was like one of the things that is happening here is the sort of ideological imposition of like a very very like specific and very modern notion of the nation on like people where it's like look man that's not how we do any of the things over here we don't have this like specific conjunction of state power and political economy that like manifests in the ways that like what we think of nations today.
0: Yeah. Right. There was this like tweet also that went viral from one of the IDF hottie girls, you know, where it was like, if you can tell me who the president of Palestine was in 1944, I'll leave their land. And everyone was just roasting her. They're like, their land. You said it. Oh my God, you said it. Like, it is their land. But also it's like, they didn't have a president that doesn't mean that they weren't a group of people who should be entitled to autonomy and sovereignty and not to be violently colonized by the british mandate yeah so yeah this is totally thing i think also the language we use of colonization like pioneers it like evokes this really romantic idea that you're going out and you're doing something good and discovering new land but it's not new land people live there and it also reminds me of Oh my god, so much of my life is from Twitter now, I can't even handle it. But something you else... Know,
1: I, you're still using... I think, you know, this is... I've been thinking about getting the nicotine patches. Yeah. Here's your nicotine patch. You have to start calling it x.com.
0: I'm not going to do that. You I'm have confused. to... That's your
1: fucking... Okay, no. then I'll, I'll smoke myself into the damn grave. <laughs>
0: wow. Emotional blackmail. <laughs> um. But no, yeah, and somebody else was like, you know, when you watch Star Trek, you know that that show was written by white people, because they say to boldly know where. Go, boldly go where no man has gone before, but everywhere they go has people. Yeah. yeah, It's like that. This is the language of colonization. Like, you're gonna go where nobody is. You're gonna be pioneers. You're gonna be the first people to do this. But it's like, you're not the first people. There are literally people already there. They live there. They've been living there.
1: Yeah. I mean, it also... The, there is a a funny quote from, like, an LA a weekly thing from years ago when Boyle Heights stuff was really, really popping off here
0: yeah
1: and it was this gallery owner who was being driven around Boyle Heights and she just keeps remarking over and over to the woman interviewing her there's nobody here (laughs) I don't understand why nobody's
0: here okay so for anybody who doesn't know Boyle Heights is an area of LA that is very heavily populated by Chicano people yeah and it has a Really huge history in Chicano movements, and, and it's got brown so much berets culture fr-
1: from there. Like the Chicano Moratorium and the 70s. It's the like Zuzu a suit
0: riots started yeah. there. I mean, this is like a place that is so full of people and has so much culture. So yeah, but that really is the thing. You put a white person there, and they're like, "There's nobody here," and you're like, "You mean there's no white people here?" And this is also Billie Eilish. Billy Eilish's parents are from Highland Park, which is an area of uh-huh. East El, Ale- n- not. It's confusing talking about LA because there's an area of LA we call the East Side, like East LA, but there's also a city called East LA that's just east of Los Angeles. That's its own city. So, like.
1: Usually the river. This yeah. is how, the river is how people.
0: Yes, but I think Boyle Heights might actually be Los Angeles.
1: Boyle Heights is Los Angeles. Yeah. It's not in the so city. So, if you of east go LA. east of
0: Boyle Heights, it's East LA. Yeah, so whatever. So, Billie Eilish is from Highland Park, which is an area of the East Side of LA. LA proper that has been rapidly gentrified within the past 10 years. Yeah. And she said, like, oh, my family's from Highland Park, but, like, we lived there when nobody lived there. And again, heavily populated. No. People definitely lived there. They were just brown people, so they yeah. don't exist to you, apparently. I don't know. Which, is like, weird?
1: I mean, I think a way to, to tie this back to Zimbabwe, to uh, Rhodesia, colonialism, is it continues Abreast, even at like in sort of like even in the metropole. Yes. Right, like the dispossession of people from their lands as like a business proposition continues.
0: It does, and it relies heavily on dehumanizing people who are different than you. Yeah. It needs that. It it needs you to go into a land full of other people and somehow view yourself as a pioneer, to somehow view yourself as the first person who's there. So this is what's going on. So they've got this group of people they're going to send in to these areas in this ground invasion basically that is backed by a company this company is doing a ground invasion of the southern part of Africa and they're like we've got some pioneers that are going to go in and they call this group of pioneers the pioneer column so the pioneer column that does this is made up of two distinct units which were both financed by the British South Africa Company. We've got the Pioneer Corps, which uh, also has civilians just thrown in. And this is a wide variety of men from different trades and professions that's supposed to go there. And once they're there, they disband at the targeted destination and they just make a community. And this is when we talk about settler colonialism, why settlers are not innocent. Like, your job is to take up space there so Native people cannot. So, their job, literally, when they got there, and they were considered a very important part of this invasion, was just to build houses and farmland as fast as possible, to be like, my land, I'm here, and like, take up space.
1: To create a, a structure that was, to borrow a term, too big to fail.
0: Yes, exactly. Like, we're here now, so you can't fight us. We're just here. Yeah. Uh, and then the other part of the Pioneer column was the British South Africa Company Police. So when we were talking about, imagine a target security guard shows up with an AK-47 and shoots you to steal your house. This is what we're talking about. The British South Africa Company Police, the p- private police force just for this company. And that was under the command of Lieutenant Colonel E.G. Pennifather, which these names are just so painfully British. This is...
1: British. I, I, it goes back to the twee thing. Can you, like...
0: Yeah, how good... Oh, father, What a cute name. No. No. Bloodthirsty Maniac. Yeah. I don't know if I can use the word maniac, actually. Is it an ableist term? I haven't I, looked into it.
1: I haven't really thought of it, but, like... It,
0: huh. That's an interesting one. Okay, put a pin on me using that. I'm going to look that up later. So, this guy was a regular soldier, but he was also overall in command of the Pioneer Column. So, the Pioneer Column gets there and they start marching through South Africa towards the homeland of the Shona. Remember, just these people
1: who are subsistence farmers for themselves, living
0: their lives in their little community. Um, So the column, the way they advance is this. They're marching and they're surrounded by advance guards who go up ahead and scout things out. Rear guards who protect from people going, hey, don't go that way. We hate you. And flanking patrols. Right. So people on either side. So the column would march from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And then they would arrive at a spot that the advance guard had already spent the night in. That They're like, this is safe. There they would allow their oxen to graze and the men could rest, you know, while it's really hot outside during the heat of the day. And then the march gets resumed at around 530 p.m. and they go until 9 p.m. And they would do this and cover around 10 miles or 16 kilometers every single day. So in all, this march lasted from July 5th through September 13th. So it took some time for them to march to this area. And in total, the pioneers were 24 officers and staff. These would be people ranging from captains to clerks. Uh, Of these men, one would be killed on his stolen farmland uh, in 1896. Good riddance. Yep, good riddance. 59 members of what was called A Troop. Uh, Of these men, 12 would be dead within a year. uh, Oh, no, sorry, within a seven-year period from a combination of battles with locals and also just the flu.
1: Good riddance. Good
0: riddance. 58 members of the B Troop, of whom 13 would be dead within a nine-year period. Yep. 37 members of the C Troop, of whom 8 would be dead within six years. 12 members of the Transport Troop, of whom 3 would be dead within six years. Potentially five other people who all claimed they were part of the pioneers, but, like, nobody could find documentation of them existing. So maybe they were just lying for attention, but maybe they actually were there and there was just bad record-keeping.
1: Like, they, like, went back to England.
0: And they were like, yeah, I did this. This was me. I was there. I helped. This is,
1: I I do find this, like, a kind of amusing about, like, pre, like, census data history type stuff where someone can just, like, show up and be like, yeah, you know where I'm from. I did the Boer War or whatever. Yeah, and you it's just, just like... say
0: whatever and then you're like, well, I guess you did. There were also 11 people who were ultimately discharged on top of all of these numbers we've counted. Five of them requested just to tap out. They were like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, two were medically discharged and one, it turns out, was wanted back in England for fraud so they had to send him back. So, you know, when we send our people, we're not sending the best of them. <laughs> to, to quote <laughs> Donald Trump. When the white people do colonization we are not sending the best of our people, um, and we also had three people who were discharged ostensibly due to fault of their own in some way.
1: Look, I, th- I you know, you've given the note like this is seeming like a smaller thing than I thought oh, it. Oh no, be, there's yeah. more. Actually. Okay, okay. So
0: on top of that, then we have the forty civilians. Okay. So these people would be ranging from a newspaper correspondent who was actually killed by a lion in Mozambique later that year.
1: (laughs) Uh, That lion's a hero.
0: Yeah. And then just like mining engineers or prospectors or just general company men. So then, on top of that, finally we have the police, and there are five hundred and twenty of them. There we go. There we go. These these are the big numbers. So you know you're looking around seven eight hundred people, a little short of a thousand people.
1: Yeah, that's still, I mean,
0: pretty small, relatively speaking.
1: And five hundred of that seven eight hundred people, cops.
0: Cops, cops. But you march in there with confidence, knowing that if shit goes wrong, you got the whole British army, yeah, at your back. They just got to show up. You yeah, send the letter, they'll come. So, on September 12th, 1890, the pioneer column arrives at their destination, and there they establish a fort, which would later become the city of Salisbury, uh, named after then-British Prime Minister Lord Salisbury, which I just think this shit is so offensive. Is it the stake? It's probably the stake guy. It's the stake guy. But I'm just thinking, like, imagine you get taken over, and they're like, this land you love? No, 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 it's not yours now, we're naming it after our guy. And you're like, I don't even fucking know that guy. Why is my house now Salisbury? But this fort got used as a foothold to expand British occupation of the surrounding territories. So this is when the British divide the area, right, Zimbabwe, into two provinces. And they're like, okay, this area we're calling Mashana Land in the east where our fort is founded. And then we're calling the other land um, Matabali Land in the west. And by October 1st, the Pioneer Corps had accomplished their goal, right? So they did what they were supposed to do. They officially disbanded, and each member was allocated 3,000 acres of land to farm in Mashana land and also given 15 gold mining claims to start out their settler colonial endeavors. So this is why when you hear people talk about the settler colonizers, they're not innocent. They are a key part of this machine, and their presence there is vital. But
1: are there people out there who think settler colonizers are, like, innocent?
0: Yes, very much. Uh, When we hear people talk about Israel. People are like, oh, but the poor settlers. And you're like, there's a reason they're armed with guns. Yes, when you see people, they're armed with guns. And this is going to be the same thing we see in Rhodesia. These like, oh, these just normal settlers, these families with their kids, they're all armed to the nines with guns because they are illegally occupying this land. And people are mad because they've stolen their land from them. So, with this, October 1st, Rhodesia is formed. And this was named... You know, after the guy himself that we talked about in the bonus episode, the British colonial administrator, Cecil Rhodes, who, you know, to sum it up, is just some some rich guy who does diamond mining.
1: He, he founded De Beers, right?
0: De Beers Diamond Company, yes.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, that same year, Rhodes himself became prime minister of the nearby Cape Colony, a position he would serve for five years, and... Uh, During that time, he acquired, interesting word to use, these British guys just stole everything, remember, a property called Grouchure, which he rebuilt in the Dutch colonial style because his dream was to make the Boers, uh, who were Dutch, German, Huguenot descent, British.
1: This guy had, like, a real fucking thing for the Dutch colonists.
0: He wanted, it's, like, almost, like, ultra-empire. He's like, not only are we going to colonize Africa... We're somehow gonna colonize the other European nations too. He
1: he he was like, the Voltroning Empire.
0: Yeah, he's like the whole world's gonna be the British Empire. Um, yeah, so real, real weird guy. So 1891 rolls around, and Cecil Rhodes, yeah, at this time, his diamond company, Rhodes De Beers Consolidated Mines Limited, which you've probably heard of, because it's a very big, big, big diamond company today they by this point were owning 90 percent of the world's production of diamonds and this was facilitated yeah through this company that he founded right in part um you know the british south africa company so this is where we see again just the merging of business and and government interest so uh there's also this thing that happens in 1891 called the anglo-portuguese convention um and during this kind of time, the, the people of the company are like, well, what if we took over Mozambique? But it doesn't quite go through. So you can see it's also not like these people show up and they're like, okay, we're here. They're like, okay, we're here. What what else can we take now? Yeah. So this is a really important part of the mindset of this to understand. The goal is expansion. The goal is seize as much as you can. And again, to draw a parallel to what happened and is continuing to happen in Palestine the goal of Israel is, is expansion.
1: It's like a hotel in the Gaza.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. They want to flatten Gaza and they want to build luxury hotels. And you have even seen like IDF soldiers probably on social media be like, look at how beautiful this beach is. They don't deserve it in Gaza. It's going to be our beach now. So, you know, this is why when people talk about like a two-state solution, we see historically two-state solutions don't work. Yeah. And also, the goal isn't a two-state solution. The goal is constant expansion and seizure. And uh, Also, just, I mean,
1: anyone who looks at a map of Israel-Palestine now and is like, these are the states that you're proposing? Yeah. It's it's bananas. It It, doesn't make sense. It
0: doesn't make sense. You would have to build a land bridge or a tunnel to even connect them. It's just very, very, very strange. Um, So also in 1891, you know, they're like, okay, we've got this place. We just showed up here. We've made it Rhodesia. And they formally, or sorry, informally at this time, established that there is going to be a difference between two regions, northern Rhodesia and southern Rhodesia. So northern Rhodesia is the area that today is Zambia, and that's going to be north of Lake Kamba, slightly to the west, and uh, it even has a separate area of it called northeastern Rhodesia beside it. It's kind of almost separated by an area that at that time was the Belgian Congo. So just to give you an idea of how much this is all getting carved up by Europe. And then we've got southern Rhodesia, which is present-day Zimbabwe, and the part that we eventually come to know as Rhodesia, and that is south of Lake Kamba, bordering Mozambique and encompassing both Matebele land and Mashona land. So by 1892, we've got Rhodes working as the prime minister of Cape Colony. And even though Cape Colony isn't Rhodesia, a lot of what he's up to in a political capacity in the neighboring region influences how all of these colonial areas are run. And one of the things he does early on is he passes this thing called the Franchise and Ballot Act. And what this does is it limits the, the votes that are allowed by the native population, the black Africans, by imposing financial and educational qualifications for you to vote so apartheid
1: yeah so he just he like came up with this on his own was that was there a history of this before that in terms of like trying to be like we're technically um well i guess there was three fists.
0: so a lot of apartheid as we think of it actually did come from his brain his ideas his unique ideas on how to do this and the yeah. thing if you listen to our main episode about rhodes is that he fancies himself a diplomat he thinks he can convince anybody of anything so when he brings about these types of laws he's like this is a great day for africa because anybody can vote as long as you've got money and a college degree. And that is that is so fair and it opens the doors for everyone. You're so happy black Africans, aren't you? And it's like, well, all of these institutions of money and educational qualifications that you're talking about are colonial ones, not African yeah. ones. So like, what? We couldn't even participate this if we wanted to. But this is how he's kind of selling apartheid. He's like, it's so free and equal for everybody.
1: It just means, and it, it goes to that white man's burden-y shit where it's like, well, you need to have, be responsible. Yes. Right? Like, you need to be responsible to be a voter, because democracy needs responsibility, and the only way to do that is to have proven yourself a good businessman with a good education.
0: And we see that this is also what happened in the United States, right? Originally, very few people could vote. We have a whole episode about democracy, where you can hear the details of that if you want to listen. But the people who could vote, it was such a small percent of the population, and it was like white land-owning men. Yeah. You know, and this was on purpose. They Yeah, they were like, we want people, we want a certain type of person to be voting. And so so this is yeah again the playbook of colonization it looks the same everywhere and this is what they were doing to make sure the control over these newly formed colonial governments stayed in the hands of the white people even though the white people were dramatically outnumbered by the black Africans who lived there who grew up there so as this is going on um there's also remember we've got other areas of land they want to expand into So in 1893, there's this area of land that we talked about in our bonus episode. Uh, Matabele land had been ruled by a king, King Lobengula. And Lobengula had been manipulated unfairly into signing over a large portion of control of the land to the British crown, to the British empire. And that is actually what kind of like Spawned basically uh, Cecil Rhodes going to the British and being like, hey, let's start this company and get in there because I just tricked this guy into giving up a huge part of his uh, kingdom to us. So even though this had happened, there were still some things that Lobengula was still in charge of in the area. But in 1893, Rhodes' close friend, who was also the company administrator, his name was Leander Starr Jameson, he instigates this gnarly invasion into Lobengula's Matabele land under dubious pretenses. He's just like, "No, fuck it. We're just not going to honor anything we agreed to with this guy. We're just going to take it all."
1: So, so literally, what we did to Indigenous Americans here. Exactly. Yeah.
0: The treaties mean nothing. Again, all colonization follows the same playbook. And again, what we saw uh, Israel do to Palestine it, with like the eight days war, you know. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, this. You know, was bad. Uh, and even Rhodes didn't like this because he's like, you can't, this doesn't justify a full scale ground invasion. Like you need to play the rules a little bit because we got to be a little diplomatic.
1: It's like an optics game for Rhodes. He's like, this looks bad.
0: This looks bad for all of the different, different, right? Colonial settler governments of yeah. of white empire going on in South Africa. This was a short, sharp war, but it did end in the total defeat of Lobengula and led to his death. So this is really what opened up the doors for this area, Matabeli land, to be heavily settled and colonized as well as part of Rhodesia, so pioneers just started streaming into this area following this war. So in 1894, uh, Rhodes was still remembered working as Prime Minister of Cape Colony, a different place nearby, and he passes another law called the Glen Gray Act. And this was served uh, to enforce the segregation of Native Africans and further disenfranchise them and control all of their economic options. So he passed this law because he was like, I don't want the Dutch and the British to fight. Because remember, he's like weirdly obsessed with the Dutch, Dutch becoming British.
1: The, the Dutch? The Is Dutch, that, sorry. The du- no, I'm sorry. No, you just said a portmanteau. <laughs> oh, it's the Dutch.
0: The, D- the Dutch and the British, they become the Dutch. No, you're yeah. right. Um, so to him... This involved some risk of what he said as a quote, mixing up the native question with the race question. So again, we saw this happen in the United States. White people invented race as a way to divide and conquer poor people. That's what happened here in the United States. Once we saw black and white poor people working together at Bacon's Rebellion, we were like, no, there's a new designator now. There's black poor people and there's white poor people and you're different and white poor people get slightly more rights. Yeah. And this is how we separated people based on race here in the Americas. So, you know, this is like a funny thing. If you ever see people be like, oh, my God, people of color talk about race all the time. White people literally invented it. We invented it specifically to divide and conquer people. And this is something we see him utilizing again. He's like, well, we'll just mix up the native question with the race question. And this will make the Dutch and the British on the same side because we're still white people.
1: Yeah, and I feel like I there's some essay, I can't remember the name of it, Stuart Hall has, where he says that race is the way that we talk about class. And like race always tends to map a lot of the class distinctions that colonial governments want to
0: yes, impose. Yes, exactly. And this is actually goes along with a quote we got from Rhodes here. He says his policy was equal rights for every white man south of the Zambezi in the region. And people didn't like this. They were like, you can't just say the quiet part out loud. Oh, my God. So then he's like, okay, fine. Equal rights for every civilized man south of the Zambezi. And this just shows you so racist that he's like, black people don't have civilizations, so clearly that means white people, duh. And you're like, they have civilizations. You're, you're standing in one right now. What the fuck?
1: I feel like this is also one of those things where it's like, because he said the first thing already, everyone's like, oh, okay.
0: Yeah, we like, know. Where yeah. it's like...
1: You already gave the game away. You can't just change a word now.
0: Right. Everybody knows. Right. So, over the next few years, there's a lot of uprisings. And, you know, this is a thing I feel like white supremacists are always like, we conquered. Like, we won. Why didn't you fight back? People in Africa were fighting back in a major way. They were fighting a major way. But again, they were fighting this huge, like, hegemonic global superpower military um, one of the big ways that people fought back was in 1896. There was something in Matabele called the Rising. And people were so mad about the misgovernment there. And it culminated in, yeah, this thing we call the Rising, which was this huge rebellion by the Ndebele people in 1896. Rhodes was away in England when this happened. And the British troops did have to go back up the company there. Because remember, Rhodesia is still a company town. That company Rhodes created, even though Rhodes is living in a nearby different settlement so the British troops have to show up and squash it. And it's such a mess that the Crown actually has to do a review of the business's charter. They're like, oh. you guys mismanaged this so bad. Do we even still want you having exclusive rights? Like you're rights?
1: costing us money, basically. You're costing
0: us money. Are you still qualified to do this? And they did actually find that, yeah, they were still qualified. And it was still worthwhile for the British government. So they were permitted to continue to do business. So we have some more some uprisings in different areas. And remember southern Rhodesia is the area we talked about in the beginning that's like you know 150,000 square miles at this time there's a whole other Rhodesia northern Rhodesia with its own separate subsection called northeastern Rhodesia so this area is big yeah it's a really large area of land and they're trying to just seize as much of it as they can um 1902 is when Rhodes dies
1: Good riddance.
0: Good riddance. But I didn't realize this. The Rhodes scholarships at Oxford are named after him.
1: That I actually randomly somehow there was like a whole thing over this because there were like statues of the guy and all of this shit that people got real justifiably
0: upset about.
1: clamped over. It. I don't
0: want to look at a statue of this guy. Yeah. No, I hate that. Um. So, but at the time he dies, the two Rhodesia still exist and they're being administered as separate entities. Um, so the business, the company that he started, d- is, does still exist. It's still existing, and it's the one administering these as two separate kind of government, you know, So it's, areas. Like,
1: it's like two different departments in the same corporate structure.
0: Kind of, yes. Yeah. Um, so they also, while administering these two different technically – not countries, but just like regions or whatever. Company towns. Company towns, yes. They are also encouraging massive immigration of white settlers to both of these areas. So they're like, we need white people to come in here. Because remember, settling is one of the most important parts of colonization. So they start telling these really exaggerated stories about gold deposits. They're Sounds doing familiar, they're right? doing
1: Sutter's Creek. Yeah. They're doing Sutter's Creek in Africa.
0: Yes, exactly. And again, all these colonization stories exactly the same yeah. so they're telling them come here there's so much gold you're gonna be so happy wow there's gold gold everywhere the streets are lined with gold ah gold and then when settlers come out and they're like oh my god there's gold they're like wait a minute there's not that much gold here and then the government's like oh you should just be farmers you're here's here a hoe now. here's a shovel <laughs> here's some land be a farmer you're a farmer now yeah so this is how their technique for like recruiting white people to come settle this area of Africa is going. Um, In 1911, that's when the division between northern and southern Rhodesia becomes, like, more official, okay? So the way to think about this, 1911, we have present-day Zambia uh, is northern Rhodesia, and present-day Zimbabwe is southern Rhodesia. And we're like, okay, officially, these are two different lands. And in 1915, the British South Africa Company Charter gets extended another 10 years, now set to expire in 1925. Uh, and unrest begins to mount against the colonial imperial powers. People are not happy that this is all getting solidified and wrapped up in a nice little bow.
1: And this is, uh, right, like, this is the period, like, the, sort of the, let's call it apotheosis. Like, it's not, like, quite the high point of British imperialism globally, but, like, it, we're getting there. We're getting there, right.
0: yeah. So... By 1923, southern Rhodesia officially becomes a self-governing British colony. Company rule there comes to an end. Okay. The company has done its job. It's now uh, its own. There
1: are enough settlers there to do settler democracy. Quote, democracy. "democracy." White people,
0: to let let the white people rule it as they want, even if they're not from the company. Yeah. Yeah. So white settlers were granted responsible government. Right. So from the 1920s, white European settlers in the Rhodesias had always sought some form of like amalgamation because they were like, look, we are outnumbered. We've got all these colonies everywhere that are controlled by white people. But white people, there's not a lot of us here and there's a lot of black Africans here. Yeah. So we're holding on to power through like these apartheid state kind of rulings and legislations like the ones that Rhodes had been doing. The you civilization
1: know? Shit. Yeah, shit. Yeah, like that
0: would be like, well we're the civilized ones, of course we make the rules, blah. but they're like really, we need some like federation of like-minded colonial empire power structures here to all have each other's back.
1: So like a United States of colonial African
0: yes. governments, yes. basically. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. So um, yeah, this would be like if you're thinking about, like, it's it's a real big club and you're not part of it, you know? That, like, George Carlin quote. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, the Democrats and the Republicans can pretend to fight each other, but at the end of the day, they're both part of the same big club and you aren't, you yeah. know? And that's what they're doing here. They're like, well, we can pretend to fight each other, uh, but at the end of the day, we need to have each other's backs because we're all white people, ooh, and we're so afraid of the black Africans. What if they rose up? Ah.
1: I mean, like, maybe for good reason in the sense that, like, you are doing apartheid. Yeah, you're People doing apartheid. have, like, a yeah. reason to, like, fight back.
0: Yeah, you are, they are, they are justifiable uh, qualms but, that the colonized people have with you.
1: Just call this a bad conscience.
0: Yes, yes. So they are like, we gotta work together, um, but there's this British colonial office, Is they're like, well, if you do this, what if it causes the black Africans to rise up against us? We have this tenuous kind of peace right now, like don't do that right now. Just chill. Yeah. So they're kind of like they feel stuck, the white the white colonizers. In 1924, Northern Rhodesia becomes just like a British protectorate. And remember, Southern Rhodesia is officially a self-governing British colony. And the British colonial office, who were the ones that were like, don't team up. They just assume control of Northern Rhodesia. And they're like, we're handling this. And the following year, the British South Africa Company charter expires completely. The company gets to retain all of its commercial assets, which include mineral rights in Northern Rhodesia. Um, and that actually becomes a valuable source of revenue following the development of the copper mining industry in that area between World War One and World War II.
1: Okay.
0: So in a few years, that's going to pay off for them. Uh, when World War II does come to an end, you know, 1945, we see a huge boom in white people immigrating to southern Rhodesia. And we also see, yeah, like we talked about, the copper boom happening in northern Rhodesia. And this ends up leading white political, like, industrialists and I don't know like men who fancy themselves in leadership roles uh to finally create a white colonial territory in africa that yeah goes against what you know the british colonial office had worried about they're like well if you make this like federation it might upset people more but they're like no no there's so many more white settlers now it's going to be fine so they're like we've got to do this because if we do this one we're making a larger market right out of all of these colonial territories now and we're going to be able to draw more uh, freely on the black labor here. Hey, exploit the locals for work and labor, especially in this other territory that we haven't really talked about, but it's called uh, Nyasaland, just kind of like to the east of okay. Rhodesia. Um, and they're like, yeah, we're going to be able to work together to secure the exploitation of resources and labor from the native population.
1: So they're basically doing like white supremacist cartel.
0: Yes. they're Yeah, exactly. It's a cartel. That's a yeah. great way to think about it. Yes. So, in 1953, they finally get this federation they've been hoping for. The Rhodesias, the two Rhodesias, join with Nyasaland, that place I just mentioned. It's to the east of them, to become the Federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland. Real creative title. They, they didn't bring any writers. No. They didn't bring any, any writers. So, this embraced that, like, British settler-dominated colony of southern Rhodesia and the territories now of northern Rhodesia and nearby Nyasaland, which present-day Malawi. Is what it is, uh, which were all under the control of the British colonial offices, those two other regions. So, black Africans in northern Rhodesia and Nyasaland, much like the British colonial office had anticipated, they did not like this. They were like, So, you're consolidating power, yeah. that is not good for us. Uh, and they're like, Realistically, southern Rhodesia is self managing, it's like, has the most power.
1: And it is at my understanding, like, that Britain. In the post World War Two era, kind of saw the writing on the wall, like a lot of Europe like about all of their colonial holdings, and like a lot of European countries were sort of in the like we know it's going, it's a matter of when, not if.
0: Yes, this is a great way to to word this. So, England at this point is like decolonization is probably inevitable, and yeah. they are not looking to make the process any more difficult for themselves. So. You know, this British colonial office, that's where they're like, let's not rock the boat here. Let's keep it going fine. But, you know, the two Rhodesias and Nyasaland are like, no, let's rock the boat. Let's do this. We're going to consolidate power. And what the British colonial office that thought, yes, would happen, does. So black Africans are like, look, this is realistically going to be dominated by southern Rhodesia because southern Rhodesia is a self-managing area now. It's yeah. not under the influence of anybody. And this is being created specifically to create even more advantages for the white population here like why else would they do it they're not doing it to be nice and help us so this is going to be bad for us uh and you know meanwhile apartheid in southern rhodesia is just rampant like for example no black africans live in salisbury which is the capital of their supposed country
1: so how
0: yeah no Because so
1: i'm assuming there are laws
0: there are so many laws Um, So, black Africans just were not legally allowed to use any facility in Salisbury or in any area, urban or rural, that was designated under the Land Apportionment Act as European Land. So, there's an act that's passed. It's like, no, this is European land, so this is only for the Europeans to use. Sound familiar? Literally what goes on in uh, Palestine and Israel.
1: Also, it's a real funny definition of European land down there in Southern Africa. In Africa, That's like...
0: What? Yeah. What?
1: Who taught them geography?
0: No, wild. But it does remind me of how yeah. in, you know, like the West Bank, for example, there are areas where Palestinian people aren't allowed to walk on the street in front of their house and they have to climb out a window and go down a back alley to leave their homes that they've lived in for decades.
1: Oh, yeah. I think I saw, I think it was an Al Jazeera thing where uh, Israel had set up like a checkpoint outside of some family's house and so they had to like go around every time they wanted to go into their house.
0: Yes. So this is what we're talking about. There's areas where it's yeah. like, well, if you're not European, you just can't go there i I'm so sorry. Um, and yeah, it's, it's getting really, really gnarly. So, half of the land in Rhodesia actually was reserved just for Europeans. Uh, and Europeans made up at this time five to six percent of the population. And remember, this is after the massive immigration boom of white people there.
1: Yeah. So, by
0: 1970, black people who comprised of the population at that time, they lived so far below the poverty line. They were uh, living off per capita incomes of just $500, while white people in the same areas, theirs were $18,482 for comparison. So the the apartheid is apartheiding. Yeah. And a UNESCO report that same year found uh, that there were basic themes in the process by which white power was consolidated in the region, and they were, number one, white land control through unequal tenure and allocation of land, Number two, white executive and administrative, as opposed to representative, government of the African majority, combined with government responsibility to an exclusively white electorate. Number three, white control over the potential economic power of labor. This was ensured by white monopoly of skills by restricting training and education to whites, combined with control and over-bargaining power through trade union legislation, which discriminated against the organization of black workers.
1: Wait, so let's go back to the, like, you have to have an education. Yeah, the restricting education of blacks. So it's like. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to. Yeah.
0: Yep. Uh, number four uh, white retention of political power referred to as responsible by white Rhodesian politicians to ensure the continuity of one through three. And uh, this UNESCO report said the benefits the system brings to whites, plus the fact that they inhabit, as they largely do, the highland areas of a country with an almost perfect climate, makes it easier to explain, if not to understand, why their actions deny the Christian ethic they purport to uphold and reject the democratic ideals of government of the civilization they claim to defend. It also explains how they can commit treason against the crown and country they emotionally admire and whence the majority of them originate. The process of maintaining political power has inevitably produced an additional but now very characteristic feature of the Rhodesian way of life, a system of authoritarian government as inhumane, if not as savage, as any dictatorship existing.
1: So, to summarize, white Rhodesians really love Britain as an idea. As a concept. Conceptually. mm
0: mm-hmm.
1: But Britain... Not a great place, but at least in the metropole, is sort of doing democracy a little bit, sometimes part of the time, big asterisk in that. Yeah. Right. And so white Rhodesians are sort of like, we really love the concept of it, but we're going to do full on authoritarian white supremacist and terrorist state down here.
0: Yes, exactly. This is what's going on. So this is what Rhodesia is like at the time. And this is why black Africans are like, this is bad. And you guys want more power? What would more power even look like? So by 1957, anti-imperial black nationalist rebellion groups started forming. And this includes the African National Congress, sometimes called the ANC, which was formed um, with Joshua Nkomo as president. And that name is important because we're going to hear a lot from him. So the ANC uh, set about fighting discrimination against black Africans in the region. And uh, two years later, the group was banned.
1: That That makes sense,
0: yeah. But there was also a growing nationalist movement in Nyasaland nearby. So that was picking up steam. And this all convinced the British, the Crown, that, like... They had to transfer power over to the black majority or things were going to get bad. So like you were talking about after World War II, how they were like, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when we lose our colonial little states here. This is exactly what Britain is seeing. They're seeing the writing on the wall and they're like, this is going to get really bad. We have to make like a pure democracy here that transfers power over to the black majority.
1: And generally speaking, it seems like Britain's thing was like, look sort of like post-World War II financial capitalism does not require the kind of large administrative state to ensure British hegemony by other means.
0: Yeah. Right? Like, they yeah. were
1: basically like, we'll just do the capitalism.
0: Yeah, we're, we're fine. We've extracted resources. We've done it. We can continue to extract resources, or, even with a black majority rule there.
1: Or rather, American hegemony with Britain as, like, the weird sidekick now.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, also... This is, like, interesting because these nationalist movements... I think it's always important to point out how different nationalism is for, like, an oppressed and colonized people versus, like, a hegemonic power. Like, when we think about, like, nationalism in the United States, it's scary. Yeah. But when you think about nationalism in places that have been victimized by colonization, like nationalism in Vietnam, like nationalism in Korea, like nationalism in Africa, you know, in Zimbabwe, these are, like, such different forms of nationalism because what you're really saying isn't, like... I'm xenophobic and I hate foreigners. Ah, what you're really saying is, like, we should have the right to autonomy and sovereignty.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, to go back to the thing I said uh, somewhat earlier about the sort of, like, relatively modern conception of nationalism, uh, like, the idea that, like, a sort of, like, ethnic or cultural population should correspond to a political economy and a state. Yes is, like, a relatively recent phenomenon.
0: Right. The nation has to exist for nationalism to be a thing, and the nation is largely a Western imperial construct.
1: And Benedict Anderson, a guy in Imagine Communities, which is, like, sort of the book that started a lot of people thinking about nationalism as a modern construct or whatever, um, one of the things he points out is that, like, a lot of those conceptions actually come from settler colonialist. Contexts, as opposed to from, like, European contexts, Like, they get imported back into Europe from settler colonial estates because settler colonial estates can conceptualize themselves as, like, a kind of ethnic but also professional class together. Yeah. Right? It's very interesting. So when we think about, like, American nationalists, we're also thinking about nationalism in a specifically settler colonialist context
0: yes we are definitely yeah. so you know as this is happening again the british see the writing on the wall they're like this is gonna go bad fast um you know there's growing black nationalist movements there's more of them than there are white settlers even with the you know quote unquote uptick right in in yeah. white immigration there we see those actually not doing numbers like they had hoped so They're like, hey, Rhodesia, you should consider just doing open general elections. This is not going to fly for long. And Rhodesia is like, fuck you. Like, absolutely not. We're doing what we want. Um, So, you know, they banned the ANC, like we mentioned, but they just immediately formed a new group called the National Democratic Party instead, the NPD. So this is like we see like these black nationalists being like, get out of your colonizers, they're not going away. They're not being scared off easily. They're like, our lives are at stake. Like, no. You ban one group, we're just doing another one right in its place. So in 1960, other regions of Africa do, yes, begin to rapidly decolonize. This Mm -hmm. is when this really starts. And colonial governments in London are facing pressure on, you know, the Rhodesias, for example, to hold free elections and allow the majority to rule, which would obviously be black people in the region. However, Rhodesia, again, refuses. And instead, they're like, we're going to start to track the race of our population to really see how outnumbered we are, to get a sense of how bad this is.
1: It it always is a good sign when you're doing, like, race science and statistics. (laughs) Like, that's always, like...
0: Things are going well.
1: (laughs) The thing that comes next is always awesome.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So there's this book called The Collapse of Rhodesia that talks about this, and they explain it. They have this quote. They go, from the early 1960s, a Rhodesian state attempted to discover the contours of Rhodesia's demography by identifying, counting, registering, and tracking the racial population. The population numbers, when first discovered, shocked Rhodesia's white community and spurred the state- To the collapse of Rhodesia, uh, you know, focusing its energies on addressing these racial population imbalances.
1: So basically, layman's terms, they did they did a head count, it didn't go well.
0: Yeah. And they were like, this is gonna fall apart. Uh we have to address the racial population's imbalances and get a lot more white people here. Um However, these numbers came to be deployed in different ways uh, and for different purposes by the state. The numbers could at times be weapons to use against political enemies. They could provide a pretext for actions that were long desired. They could be evidence of success to boost popularity. And at other times, they could be hidden away or obscured as signs of failure. As such, the counting of people and control over these statistics were very important political issues in Rhodesia. And when you think about this, you really see how these could be employed. Let's say, for example, that you're like, Well, of course, white people have more rights and privileges. It's because there's so many more of you and we're actually a minority here and we're protecting ourselves as a minority. Oh,
1: no, they're not doing that. Like they're not. We're a protected class.
0: Yeah, they could do that if they wanted. Or they could be like, look at how many more white people have immigrated here recently. It's so safe and cool. You should send more white people Europe. So they could utilize these in ways that contradicted Mm -hmm. each other. They could be like, there's so many of us, we're doing awesome. They could be like, there's hardly any of us, poor us. So they're like, we're going to weaponize the numbers, basically. Yeah. So, 1961, they introduce a new constitution. And African nationalists are like, no, fuck this. This is bad. Uh, But the European colonists are like, what? It's fine. It's so good here. And, um, meanwhile, you know, remember the new group that was established, the National Democratic Party, after they banned the other one? Yeah. They're like, okay, you guys are getting really mad at this new constitution, we're just gonna ban you too. Yeah. So this ends up being a-, a bad idea, because what ends up taking the NDP's place is so much bigger than they ever could have thought, and eventually spells their downfall. And it is something that's abbreviated to ZAPU, is what we'll call it, Z-A-P-U. And it is formed by Joshua Nkomo. Okay. Right, and this comes—it's—it's it's called the Zimbabwe African People's Union, and this comes from uh, an ideology rooted in Marxism. That so the commies come, yeah, and we get some commies. So, 1962 Rhodesia's like, oh my god, no ZAPU gets banned, uh, but we'll see—it doesn't stick. Yeah, why? Like,
1: stop banning shit. Like, yeah, it does, its its, not it's, it's nothing. It, to it. It's yeah. whack
0: a mole. You ban it, something else pops up in its place. And Rhodesia is still trying to tackle this number situation. So they introduce a census. And they're still like, how outnumbered are we? How bad is this? What are our options? And just as an aside, uh, again, about how they didn't bring any writers when they colonized, it's called Operation Big Count. <laughs> That was Fork, my dog, sitting on my lap. She, she's
1: very angry at this. She did
0: not like Operation <laughs> Big Count. But yeah, they're not bringing writers. There's no poetry in their souls.
1: Can you imagine, wait, what was uh, the Marxist party? Oh, Zappu. What What did it stand for?
0: Uh, Zimbabwe African People's Union.
1: That sounds like something that I'd like to join if I were a Zimbabwean person. Yes, I would right, love to be part like, of a
0: union of people in my area, Yeah. <sighs> If I <laughs> Operation Big <laughs> Count, on I've, the other hand. <laughs> you don't want to get counted in big count? No,
1: I don't like
0: <laughs> I don't want, want that out of,
1: out of my life.
0: Yeah. It's not great. And this is part of, yeah, this obsession with cataloging the black population there. Um, meanwhile, Rhodesia's African population is growing rapidly throughout the 1960s and 70s. And historians agree that this ends up fueling a near panic about the political future of Rhodesia. And while this is all happening and they're doing big count, what they're learning continues to terrify them. It turns out that even though there's an uptick in immigration into Rhodesia, uh, more people are actually leaving Rhodesia than the white population there previously thought.
1: So more, and you mean white people.
0: White people, white people, White people are leaving. White people are leaving.
1: So they're like, oh, this is getting kind of bad. I don't want to be here for what's happening next.
0: Yeah, so for example, they're like, oh my God, 200,000 people came. But then once they start tracking, they're like, and 200,000 people left. Uh..." Actually, it
1: might have been a little more than that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah. It was bad for the white settlers there. They're like, this is not working how we thought. So these census efforts, what they really do is they show the white people in Rhodesia how fragile and tenuous their control over the region is. All while, one, African black population growing and getting very organized.
1: I gotta add, like, was there any, like, white Rhodesian person just sitting around being like, hey, here's a, a novel idea. What if we left?
0: Well, yeah, 200,000 well, I mean, but <laughs>
1: mass, Like, what if we just all...
0: Like a decolonization movement?
1: Leave, because this doesn't seem like a tenable situation.
0: I think those are the people who just on their own, though, left, you know? It's kind of like, why would you stay if you were like, we need to go? You'd be like, I'm just gonna go.
1: So no one just, like, even, like, wrote, like, a newspaper editorial before they left that was like, Hey, guys, just throwing this out there we should go. Okay, so I don't nobody
0: think- did, actually. And what's interesting is that the government was really confused about why white people were leaving, and they started <laughs> just asking them, which we'll get into shortly, which is kind of sad and funny. So, 1964 is something terrifying happens for the southern area of Rhodesia. Zambia, formerly northern Rhodesia, and Malawi, formerly that region just east of them, both gained their independence. And this, remember, they were part of the Federation of Rhodesia and Mm Nyasaland, so that comes to an end. That's no more, because the Federation has fallen. All all that's left is southern Rhodesia. Um, So also the company that did all this, the Rhodes Company, right, the British South Africa Company, they're forced by threat of uh, expropriation to assign their mineral rights back to the local government. Okay. So the company then merges with two other companies and they create Charter Consolidated Limited in 1965 Um, and Southern Rhodesia, the last one standing, they're like, "Okay, we're just Rhodesia now. There's no Northern Rhodesia. It's just us. And this is what we think of as Rhodesia today. So, at first, they're still just a British colony, but that only lasts, like, a year or two. Um, and due to some pressure, desegregation has started creeping into Rhodesia, but not much. There's, like, some hotels and movie theaters and park benches are sometimes desegregated.
1: This is, I mean, this is peanuts, if you're thinking about it, because it's like, oh, you can go sit on a park bench now.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. But people are trying to be like, look, like, there's progress. It's going to be fine. But it's really not. And there's this new constitutional measure that comes about that's supposed to allow like some access to government for black Africans in the country. Um, Again, they were counting the numbers and they saw they were outnumbered and they were like, oh, no, the locals are getting organized. But it's not representative and it's on purpose to ensure that black Africans will never have majority rule because they are 95 percent of the population.
1: So, yeah, I mean, like any election would just like just as a numbers game.
0: There's no way the white yeah. people are winning anything. So the new constitution is like, what if we let Africans elect 15 out of the 65 members of legislature? And you're like, this is this is not
1: so like right. Like it seems
0: progressive,
1: progressive from zero, from zero, from zero to 15. Like that's like a not how do I put this? If you didn't think about it at all, that would seem like, wow, that's a significant minority. Still bad, but then you're like, oh, wait, a significant minority that could do nothing against, like, an overwhelming majority.
0: They could do absolutely nothing with 15 votes. It's purely symbolic. It grants them no real power. And again, they are 95% of the population. Like, 64.99999 of those votes should be them. Yeah. If this is how we're doing this. So the international community is like, this is not enough. You guys need to do more because this is a powder keg, you know? And white Rhodesians are like, we just don't want to give in. And England, meanwhile, is largely powerless to enforce it. You know, they're a colony, but England's like, this is not going well for us, the colonization stuff. We're we're not doing this. So by this point, there are no British troops in Rhodesia. There's just a high commissioner who's there like as a diplomat. It's largely symbolic. And Ian Smith, who at this time is the prime minister in Rhodesia, is growing increasingly disillusioned with the queen. So, like, we were talking about how they, like, yeah. love the crown in theory, but in practice they don't. He's like, the queen we all knew and loved is not the queen that exists today. She well, changed. It's,
1: it's like, it's Elizabeth now. That's like a relatively, that's like 10 years of Elizabeth. She was a 50s lady, right? Oh,
0: was she? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know all the queen.
1: Um,
0: but, yeah, so on November 5th, 1964, white re- residents of Rhodesia, now Southern Rhodesia previously, right, vote overwhelmingly to just assert their independence away from the British crown. Yeah. So they vote. They're like, no, we're not doing the England thing anymore. We're our own country. Meanwhile, Joshua Nkomo is incarcerated, and he will remain there until December of
1: 1974. Damn, so that's, what, 10 years? 10 years, 10 years, but he
0: comes back. (laughs) So 1965 is when Prime Minister Ian Smith unilaterally declares Southern Rhodesia's independence, November 11th, 1965. There's no international recognition for this. And this is where we think of Rhodesia, like this is where it begins, 1965. So all that leads up to this point. And he says, the mantle of the pioneers has fallen on our shoulders. And he calls on white Rhodesians to maintain what he considered to be standards in what he called a primitive country.
1: You know, Sounds by familiar. by 1965, I gotta imagine that, like, the international community is going, like, you gotta update your, like, racism. You gotta, like, make your racism contemporary.
0: Yeah, do popier, more current racism. But this guy sees himself as an apostle of Cecil Rhodes. So he's saying the same old Cecil Rhodes shit, right? Yeah. He's just like, yeah, we have to come here and civilize these uncivilized people. Oh, And uh, Smith shared Rhodes' belief that the black majority rule... Wouldn't happen there. And the quote that Rhodes had used, that Smith actually used, was never in a thousand years. They, like, can't imagine. They're Mm -hmm. so racist, I think, that they cannot imagine that the black Africans would be capable of governing themselves, or would organize to overthrow them. They just don't... They're so disillusioned by their notions of white supremacy that they're like, that couldn't happen.
1: I mean, it seems like they are... You know, a a bad way to do anything is to uh, uh, drink your own Kool-Aid, so to speak. Yeah. Right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Once you start believing your bullshit.
1: If you, like, you you can sell your bullshit, but, like, don't believe it. Don't believe it. Yeah, like, if they're believing their shit, they're done.
0: Yeah, they are. Um, So they released this document, right, proclaiming their independence. It's called the Unilateral Declaration of Independence, or the UDI. So when this comes out, the United States actually drafts a secret internal document to talk about how we're going to handle it. And uh, in it, it says U.S. policy and interest. U.S. policy on Rhodesia, which was reaffirmed by Assistant Secretary Williams last week, is essentially to let Britain take the lead using its own limited leverage to buttress British efforts to find a peaceful solution which is based on clear prospect of an early majority rule. The U.S. is investigating the possibility of joint economic sanctions with the U.K. The U.S. has turned down some Rhodesian requests for military equipment and has been made clear to Smith that we would not recognize a UDI. Um, The UK, meanwhile, they're saying in order for them to recognize Rhodesia's independence, five principles would need to be adhered to. And they are one, the principle and intention of unimpeded progress to majority rule would have to be maintained and guaranteed. So, again, this doesn't mean it has to go into effect right away, but they're like, unimpeded progress to it you gotta be showing us signs that you're gonna go to majority rule because it's just a bad look and diplomatically we can't defend it
1: this is like uh look we're going to give you your uh, coin for one month sober but like you're still yeah yeah
0: and they're like, number two, there would have to be guarantees against retrogressive amendments to the Constitution. Like, you have to promise you're not going to change this shit later. Number three, there would have to be immediate improvement in the political status of the African population. Number four, there would have to be progress towards ending racial discrimination, which real wild for the UK to say. Because mm-hmm. the United States, like we still don't have... We any ended racial discrimination. But it was
1: like the UK said that? Yeah,
0: the UK said this. They were
1: fucking discriminating all over the place. Yes.
0: Yeah, so again, you could tell the UK is really just worried internationally about how this reflects on them. And number five, the British government would need to be satisfied that any basis proposed for independence was acceptable to the people of southern Rhodesia as a whole. So they're like, it can't just be you white people who want this. Yeah. It's gotta be the black Africans too. So, um, you know, this kind of thing was not acceptable for the Rhodesians because they're like no we actually wanted the UDI to be so we could be more racist
1: yeah they were like we like take the chains off let us be as racist as we want
0: exactly they're like our expressed goal is actually to maintain white rule that's why we're leaving you and the international community is not pleased with this response Uh, which I'm a little surprised because I feel like the international community usually sides with bad guys um, but I think it's just, just such bad optics, nobody can defend it, because they are literally coming out and being like, no, we're doing this Nazi Germany style to just, like, continue to be the white minority that runs everything and oppress every minority we can and harm them.
1: This also just seems like, look, this is bad for business, yeah. right? Like, you're gonna, like... You're going to start some shit. Like, there's no way to not start some shit when, you ha- like, when the numbers look like that.
0: Right. Also, like, the Kissinger thing. Yeah. You know, the Kissinger thing where he's like, the status quo is what we want because it facilitates business. But yeah. if you're down here fucking up the status quo, you're going to have a full-scale war and it's going to be bad for business.
1: And, it, and so, to me, it's just like, look, don't fuck up our shit. Like, that yeah. seems to be, like, the international community's response, which is like...
0: Yes, that is totally their response. I don't think they're doing anything out of the kindness of their hearts, right? So the United Nations General Assembly condemns the Rhodesian government on November 11th, 1965, which, you know, is the day it's released. The day their UDI comes out, <laughs> the UN is like, absolutely fucking not.
1: Bad, bad reviews on opening day.
0: Yeah, for- bad reviews. Um, they respond by issuing all these economic sanctions and a boycott of the country. So That's
1: nice. Yeah,
0: the new government led by Ian Smith declares the white man is master of Rhodesia. He has built it, and he intends to keep it. So this just as an aside, as we get into Rhodesia and what happens next, you can imagine it's a shit show. There's all this like imagery. This is where the imagery starts to come out of like the white women in Rhodesia.
1: Oh yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and this is like that sex sells thing. Same thing the IDF does today, where it's just like look at these hot blonde white women here this is our land there's like this picture of which i'll end up posting on our instagram i think of like a white woman with blonde hair she kind of looks like debbie harry honestly and she's wearing a shirt with the rhodesian flag and it says i'm staying how about you do you have this picture here you want to see Jesus. Yeah, so this is, like, a very... And she's got, like, a machine gun over her shoulder.
1: Yeah. So
0: what we really see is when Ann Smith does this, it's not like people think it's going to be peaceful. They're like, no, we're ready for war. Like, bring it. This is our But country. they're, like,
1: they're trying to sell it as, like, hey, international racist community, have you thought about, like, getting involved in some shit.
0: Yes, and they do. They start to export the idea. This is what we talked about Mm. earlier, it's like, if you love being white and shooting things, come to Rhodesia! It's gonna be great. It's a racist theme park. It's a racist theme park. Yes, it's a white supremacist theme park. And we see the white settlers are heavily armed, you know. They've got the machine guns to defend their family, and we really do. We see that same iconography we see today. Which is, like, the woman with the baby and the gun. The white woman with the baby and the gun, specifically.
1: Yeah, I mean, that sort of imagery gets, that, like, it seems like if you are trying to do any kind of cause, optically, Gaddafi famously had his, like, brigade of ladies. Yeah. Um, this is kind of, like... Get a lady with a gun.
0: Get a lady with a gun, and Rhodesia leans all the way in. Let me tell you. Yeah. They're like, you like women? We got women. You like guns? We got guns. We got women with guns.
1: Put put a beer in her hand, and you've got a fucking.
0: That's a that's the American dream, my friend. Yeah. Um, and it this kind of works. It kind of works. So, this is the first day Rhodesia actually exists. Okay, so from the jump, Rhodesia conflict. It's bad. It's bad. Day one, it's bad. Um, so, you know, Rhodesia, not just an exercise in colonization, but an exercise in explicitly stating that they are trying to build a white ethno state. Yeah. And this is why we later see the white supremacists all love this place. So, the stated goal of Ian Smith is to just like build a white utopia here. And this means that pretty much instantly Rhodesia is at war with a black insurgency. Right, and these are people who are fighting self-defense movements. They're asking for a representative government. They're asking to be able to have sovereignty over their own land. They're asking to have equal rights in the country they were born in. This is what we see time and time again. It's like these requests Not extreme.
1: And this is also the era of sort of like post colonial uprisings or whatever, just globally and especially in Africa, right? Algeria's in the middle of a war.
0: Right. Right. Neighboring countries have been granted their sovereignty and freedom. Yeah. So, yes. White people, again, still a huge minority in Rhodesia at this time. So to maintain the white rule, they have to maintain different laws for white people versus black people in the region. Like they have to maintain the apartheid. So in 1965, the year that Rhodesia declares itself its own country, just 5% of Rhodesia's 4.2 million person population was white. And white people though, yeah, still retained all the political power. And we've seen this figure kind of shift anywhere from 3 to 7% of the population is white with immigration over the past few years. But this is where it's at in 1965 when they declare their independence. And the majority of the black population is divided between the Shona, which was approximately 90% of the indigenous population, and the Ndebele. So the apartheid is still going strong in Rhodesia. Black people are still excluded from the government. Uh, they're also still excluded from virtually all professional walks of life. They still have that uh, stark class system based on race as a result of those things, things we talked about before, like education and job training and the jobs they're allowed to have. And the Rhodesian government uh, had introduced legislation that gave it the power to suppress all of these organization groups that represented the black population. So immediately from 1965 going on until 1980, we have the Rhodesian Bush War is what it's called. And this is a battle for independence. So two armed groups basically began an insurgency against the white minority government of Ian Smith. We have the Zimbabwe African National Liberation Army called ZANLA, which was the military wing of the Zimbabwe African National Union Patriotic Front, ZANU for short. And that was led by Mugabe, Robert Mugabe. Then we have the Zimbabwe People's Revolutionary Army, ZIPRA, which was the military wing of that Zimbabwe African People's Union, ZAPU, that we talked about earlier, which was the Marxist-Leninist political party led by Joshua Nkomo. So the fact that he's in prison... Yeah. People are mad.
1: This is... Uh, this is just... Uh, yeah, it's all out war.
0: Yeah, it's all at war. So pretty quickly, the Rhodesian army creates a branch just to fight these internal insurgents, as they're called, right? But we know they're just like freedom fighters. They're fighting their oppressors. Yeah. They're fighting for their independence. And this internal branch of the Rhodesian army was called the Selo Scouts. Have you heard of this? No. They were special forces. There was a regiment of the Rhodesian army uh, founded by Lieutenant Colonel Ronald Reed Daly. And their only job was to fight black armies in the Bush War of the 1960s and 70s to maintain the white supremacist white minority rule.
1: So, Maddie, I don't know if you have an answer to this. Where were they getting their guns?
0: Oh, um, well... <laughs> it's actually a really good uh, question because it later turns out that the United States did give them some of their guns. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I was just, I was uh-huh. like, I, I, I feel like I know the answer to this, yeah. but I just wanted to.
0: We did give them a little bit of guns and we, we bought a little bit of guns, too. We mm-hmm. did some arms trading with them, uh, even though we weren't supposed to. We did that. And we'll, what's also interesting is who is giving these black liberation groups their guns, too.
1: I'm going to go ahead and say the Soviet Union's involved.
0: The Soviet Union and China. Yeah. They are helping uh, kind of support these liberation movements. So the Celos scouts are really, really interesting. Um, So the major Ron Reed Daly, who put them together, there's this quote from him where he says, We do not consider ourselves an elite group of men, nor do we think we are of the highest caliber. It could cause the men to imagine themselves better than they really are, and this could in turn lead to recklessness. We are simply just trackers out to do a job. We take a chap right down when he first comes here, right to the bottom, and then we build him up again into what we need in the of scouts. Some people might say it's a dehumanizing process, and maybe it is. But as far as I'm concerned, that's the way it has to be. We have to keep this unit up to standard. I've heard all sorts of so-called crack outfits becoming nothing more than shadows of what they were because of lowering standards to increase the number of men going through into combat. And I'm determined not to let that happen here.
1: So this is the rhetoric of, like, the special forces and also, like, somewhat made popular by, like, full metal jacket and shit like that. The, like, we break them down to build them up.
0: Yes, yes. And the result is this task force of racist super cops, right, who are brutal. They are yeah. brutal. Um, there was actually a photo that was awarded a Pulitzer Prize, and it was taken September 1977 by an associate press photographer named J. Ross Bauman. And it actually shows one of these Rhodesian Army members of the cell of scouts, uh, Lieutenant Graham Bailey, like having this like small wooden bat that he's like hitting against his leg and in the background is a man slumped against a wall he he looks dead in the photograph honestly he's not though and you can tell he's been beat and so the implication is that this cell of scouts guy just used this bat to beat up this man Mm -hmm. and the man's name in the background is Moffat Nkube who's a local teacher and a political leader and in the picture he's bound and he's unconscious and he's kind of laying on the floor with his head and shoulders up against the wall of a schoolhouse. So this photo was taken September 20th, right of 1977. Nkube reportedly died later after three days of having endured brutal nonstop torture at the hands of these guys in the Russian army. So it's really, really, really bad. And again, this is all because black people wanted to be represented politically in their own country equally. Yeah. Um, So of course, yeah, China and the USSR are viewing this happen from a Marxist-Leninist perspective and under Marxist-Leninist doctrines, marginalized people have the right to self-determination and also imperialism is the enemy of the people. So they're like, Rhodesia is the devil, obviously. This goes against all of our belief systems and they start giving the native population of Rhodesia weapons to help them fight off those white imperial oppressors. So politically, um, there's some division on who's supporting who. Like I believe China is uh, supporting... The not Marxist Leninist kind of rebellion group.
1: Like the Mugabe group. Yeah, the Mugabe
0: yeah. group and the USSR is supporting the Zipra led by Nkomo. So From prison.
1: Yeah, and this so. is also the like the period of like the Russo Sino split or whatever, where yes. like they're sort of competing for who is going to be kind of like king communist. I yeah. don't know how else to put that, but no, like No, it
0: does make sense. You're yeah. totally right. Um so then of course from this the Rhodesian government goes to the west, the western European, you know, countries and the United States and they're like, "Oh my god, you have to help us. The black Rhodesians are actually just communist terrorists and you guys hate communism, so you have to help us kill all the communists."
1: So that's Or we're going to
0: go communist too. Ah! Um, So the USA predictably is like, whoa, should we care about this? I don't know. And the United States does, it appears, start doing some covert weapons trading with Rhodesia at at the moment this is said. Um, So the Rhodesian army is pretty good at fighting these insurgents, no matter how organized they are, because they're just fucking brutal they're just like a brutal yeah. colonizing force but they are not so great at protecting like these small villages of settlers around Rhodesia mm-hmm. sounds familiar so these settlers yeah just are strapped with machine guns to quote unquote defend themselves even though they are the aggressors yeah we, we see this um, so they developed also these local militias known as village defense forces this the is all sounding
1: did. familiar to me
0: very yeah. Israel yeah yeah, totally, but the police force in the region—it's worth noting—they were still called the British South Africa Police Force, still named after the company that founded them.
1: I really love the idea of Britain being like, "Hey, could you like take our name off the letterhead?"
0: And they're like, "Absolutely not. No, they it's... cannot afford new uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh-uh. we're still, even though we hate you and we're our own country, we're still the British South Africa Police. What?" So this is when the war really enters what people call the conflict phase, which is described as being from April 28th, 1966 through December 21st, 1979. So it's a pretty good conflict phase. And it's a year after when they declare themselves to be their own country, although we know fighting had been happening this whole time. So the event that kicks off what people call the conflict phase, April 28th, 1966, the Rhodesian government kills seven Zanla freedom fighters. Mm-hmm. And a few weeks later, Zanla rebels kill two white Rhodesian farmers in retaliation. Okay. So it's kind of, that's all that happens in a major way. There's still like some skirmishes, some little fighting. But then the following year, in August and September, Zipra rebels clashed with the Rhodesian government troops. And this results in the death of 25 Zipra rebels. And remember, Zipra was the uh, fighting force of the Marxist-Leninist group. And it also results in 25 ANC insurgents dying and 8 Rhodesian military personnel dying. So, the apartheid South African government nearby, they respond by deploying 2,000 paramilitary police in support of the Rhodesian government. Okay. So, really, the only people on the international stage who have Rhodesia's back is South Africa. Yeah. Because they're like, hey, buddy.
1: We also would like to do white supremacy.
0: Yes. Let's do it together. Let's help each other. Because the whole world hates us. So, the next year, 1968... Uh, in March and April, Zipra rebels along with South African insurgents who were like, absolutely not, get us out of this hellscape they end up fighting the Rhodesian government and this results in the death of 55 Zipra fighters 23 South African fighters and 8 Rhodesian military personnel and by May of 1968 the UN is like, this fighting is bizarre and wild and they impose mandatory economic sanctions against the Rhodesian government so it's like, if you're in the UN, you have to (laughs) sanction these people um, shockingly, the U.S. not only verbally complies with this, they also impose additional sanctions of their own, but we know they secretly maybe were doing some weapons treating. So trading.
1: this is a death protest too much kind of moment where they're like, no, 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 we we do all the sanctions. We're doing even more. Here's some guns.
0: Yes, Um. but so the thing to note about the U.S.A. is we don't know the full scale of our involvement yet. Yeah. Because those documents are still classified. Okay. So what we know is that we... People have said some some arms trading probably happened.
1: So this is all in the allegedly...
0: So this is still in the alleged phase. Okay. But, you know, so so again... Strong we don't, allege. Strong allege. Strong allege. So we don't know yet exactly. It could have been full support. We don't know. Yeah. We really don't know. What we do know, though, is that the United States really liked um, Mugabe. Mm-hmm. We really liked him. Yeah. So odds are we probably weren't supporting the Rhodesian government that much. Okay. It's probably okay. more that we were supporting Mugabe because we'd rather have him win than
1: the Marxist than the Marxist Leninist because we yeah. hate the
0: communists. So that's probably more the United States official stance, um, and that makes sense then why they would be like, no, we hate Rhodesia because they're like Rhodesia's not going to win this war. It's going to be one of the African black nationalist groups, mm-hmm. and we'd rather it be Mugabe than the other guy. So yeah. That feels more like us. Um, so in July of 1968, ZAPU rebels clashed with the Rhodesian government troops. This results in more deaths, 39 rebels, one South African paramilitary personnel. And meanwhile, the British prime minister is just, like, begging Ian Smith to just negotiate something. Yeah. But it's not happening. He's just like, please be rational. You are not going to win this war. Like, you're making us look bad. Like, we have to control you. Just please. And Ian Smith is like, haha, no, we're going to build the white ethnostate. Fuck you. Ah. And the the Rhodesian white people appear to be the only people who don't understand, like, you will not win this battle.
1: Yeah, I mean, how do I put this? There is a sense in which, his name is Ian Smith. Yeah. Ian Smith is a real chickens coming home to roost situation for, like, the sort of post-colonial, like, metropolitals or whatever. Yeah. For, like, the old colonial powers, because it's sort of like, well, you kind of this.
0: Yeah, you created this guy.
1: This is your mo- this is your Frankenstein. Yep,
0: yeah. and yeah, exactly. So, by 1969, there's a draft constitution for Rhodesia that gets approved in this referendum, and the constitution goes into effect. And the following year, this means that um, Prime Minister Ian Smith proclaims the Republic of Rhodesia with this new constitution, and Clifford Dupont is chosen to be acting president on March 2nd, 1970. Um, and the government of the USSR at this point sees this and they're just, they condemn the Rhodesian government. They're like, mm-hmm. you, you guys are doing everything but what you're supposed to. No. So the United States, you know, again, was starting to get swayed a little by the commie talk. So the US and the British governments together veto a resolution in the UN Security Council that would have imposed additional mandatory sanctions against the Rhodesian government. Mm -hmm. So the USSR is like, we condemn them. We hate them. And the United States and the British government are like, well, we sanctioned them, but let's not go. Let's not go overboard.
1: Yeah. They have, you know, we've punished them enough.
0: Yeah. And this, I think, is maybe like more of a move against the USSR.
1: Yeah. It's a it's like we don't want to be seen siding with the commies.
0: Right. Exactly. So uh, parliamentary elections get held and then a bunch of fighting emerges between political parties in Rhodesia. And the USA actually compiles at this time an internal Rhodesia handbook. Just, it's like, this Rhodesia situation's weird. Uh, The CIA composes it. And it's, you can actually see it uh, on the CIA website. I'll link it in the sources. And they're like, what's going on in Rhodesia? We all have to be on the same page about this. So they determined that despite Smith trying to claim they're under threat from communist attack, there's actually not much of a communist threat to Rhodesia, aside from the weapons being provided to the insurgent quote-unquote insurgents, right? The locals from the USSR and China to stave mm-hmm. off their attackers.
1: So they're like, oh, there's no ideological thing happening here. They're just getting guns from, yeah. the, from like, the USSR and China.
0: They're like, there's some communists there, but really they're just, like, mouthpieces, and, like, the actual immediate goal isn't, like, a full-blown communist revolution. It's just independence, and independence is gonna happen one way or another, so, like, no, you're actually not. None of this is worth us going in guns blazing to fight the communists, the communists aren't really a threat here and it's not worth it to us. Um, there though it is a section in the report that's like huge about the Rhodesian police and it's redacted still, even though the document was declassified. So I'm like, ooh, what secrets about the Rhodesian police are we hiding? Yeah, what? Yeah, interesting.
1: Speculate wildly.
0: Um, I'm going to say that we probably trained some of the Rhodesian police, if I had to guess.
1: Oh, yeah. There's all of that stuff about, like, all of the, like, former Nazis in and Sp- and, and Spain and stuff, like, training U.S. special forces and training randomly some people and maybe Mossad or some shit. That, yeah. Where you're like, oh, all of the special forces all just seems like one big thing of, like... They're all drawing from the same pool
0: of evil people. Yeah. yeah, that would be my guess. Um, so we do know, though, from this report, that the police force of the Rhodesian government has seven thousand people, and forty five hundred of them are Africans. Oh, so they're really trying to pit mm-hmm. black people against each other. Yeah. and remember, they have to hire Africans because there's not that many white people there.
1: <laughs> they like
0: don't even have enough white to make the their fr- own police
1: the apartheid police is one of the first to integrate.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's more integrated than anything else in the country Yeah, because they, they're they just like, we have to pay you guys to help us because there's not enough of us. We can't. Um, we also see their armed forces has a 3,000-man army, a 1,000-man air force, and a 7,400-man like, reserve. And we also know at this time from this report that 1,000 U.S. citizens are living in Rhodesia in 1970.
1: So some people responded to those ads.
0: Some people did, yeah. Yeah. We do know some did. By 1971, uh, the U.S. is kind of flip-flopping on how they're supposed to respond to Rhodesia. In 1971, Congress passed the Byrd Amendment to the Military Procurement Authorization Act, which allowed the uh, importation of strategic and critical materials from Rhodesia, which included chrome and 21 other materials, as long as there was no similar ban on imports from communist countries. So... (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's so funny. So they're like, we can import these as long as the communists aren't importing them or, oh. are, or are or something like that.
1: Yeah, sorry, I just made it. I realized we are doing this. This is audio. I made a face.
0: Yeah. No, it's just like a weird, like we're just fighting with the USSR basically. There's also by this point a Rhodesian lobby? in the United States, uh, supported by pro-segregation southerners from Congress.
1: Oh, so this is Strom Thurmond, I'm sure, is getting his hat in the ring. Yeah, and also
0: a bunch of U.S. businesses. So all the racists are like, well, hold on now, this Rhodesia thing.
1: And also, it's like we, you know, where some people see an obstacle, businessmen see an opportunity.
0: An opportunity to do more racism and also import minerals. Yeah. So they were like, well, let's, you know, let's let the let's let the white supremacists do their thing. Let's let that happen. So according to Time Magazine, this loophole that Congress passed added years to the life of the white-ruled state by providing it with the foreign currency needed to buy weapons and petroleum. The Western power's refusal to hold Rhodesia to account culminated in a 14-year war between Africans fighting for liberation and the Rhodesian security forces, a conflict that resulted in the loss of 20,000 lives. So us doing this seems like a little thing. We're like, whoa! Some, we'll buy some minerals from you. It's actually major.
1: No, it's huge.
0: It's huge because they've been so sanctioned before that this actually gave them like the power they kind of needed in order to keep going. So, in 1974, the Zambian government hosts negotiations and they're involving representatives of the Rhodesian government and also the leaders of these now four African nationalist groups. And they all come together and they sign this thing called the Lusaka Declaration, which is supposed to provide for the establishment of the Rhodesian political parties. United African National Council, um, but this thing ends up being like really hard to enforce, and you know. So at this point, we do though see that maybe Rhodesia is open to negotiating.
1: Like they, they recognize that they are on the losing side.
0: I think this is really what this symbolizes. Yeah. yeah. And the following year, the ICJ, which is the International Commission of Jurists, they conduct a fact-finding mission in Rhodesia. They issue a report, and it's not great. They're like, this is really bad. So by 1976, none other than Kissinger
1: he's got a really uh, the Waldo of international politics.
0: He's everywhere you just he's find everywhere it. yeah yeah he manages to convince Ian Smith to com- to commit to doing a majority rule plan for Rhodesia in two years time. So Kissinger somehow mm-hmm. is the guy who pulls this off. He's like, look man, you're losing the battle. We know yeah. it's not gonna happen. You're gonna ruin everything for everybody.
1: And it does not need to be stated but Kissinger is not doing this out of the kindness of his heart or He's, his belief in justice no, no, or no. any of that shit.
0: He's doing it for business.
1: He's like this is bad for business.
0: Bad for business. Get in line yeah. with the world global neoliberal business oriented order. Yeah. You are fucking it up for us. So, meanwhile though, even as Ian Smith is like, okay, in two years we'll do the general elections, wah, wah, the Rhodesian government is still attacking, like all of the black liberation groups yeah like they attack a zanla base near mozambique and that results in the death of over a thousand people all still while the british government is hosting negotiations between the rhodesian government and other political parties in the area in geneva and while all this is happening white people are just fleeing rhodesia they're just like get me out of here and remember white settlers were essential to continuing the colonial grip on the land so Immigration was the Rhodesian white population's greatest source of growth, and they wanted as many white people as they could get there to overpower the locals. From,
1: from 5%, so are we at a, a low? Do you have the percentages for this?
0: I don't have the percentage of this, but I have the figures about who's leaving and why. Mm-hmm. So politically and militaristically, they need white people there more than the native population and it's not happening so from 1955 to 1979 a total of 255,692 immigrants arrived in Rhodesia okay some of them during the fighting some of them not but over the same period 246,047 left
1: oh so they gained a few
0: they gained 9,000 people yeah but this is not enough to fight a war when you are five percent of the population So, as the collapse of Rhodesia explains, a surprisingly small percentage of white adults were born in Rhodesia or lived there most of their lives. And at no time did the Rhodesian-born whites outnumber the foreign-born. So, even though the same number of people basically are coming as leaving, it's, like, in different quantities. It's not like it worked for some people and didn't work for others. It's more like everyone left. It's just a matter of when. Yeah. So people weren't getting born there. People weren't having kids there. And maybe they'd bring their kids, but then they'd leave. So it wasn't going well. I
1: mean, can you imagine, let's say it's like, what, like 1975 or something? Can you imagine being like, hey, honey... And our two, like, our brood.
0: Yeah, our kids. Let's go to Rhodesia and fight a war against black people who are just trying to get their land back.
1: Who also make up 95% of the population. So, like, the odds are in our favor here.
0: Yeah, the only people really committing to this are just violent racists. Yeah. It's something to prove. You know, this is really who is into Rhodesia. So, 1976 then-Rhodesian Minister of Immigration Elias Broomberg, informs the Rhodesian Parliament, we have a section in our Immigration Promotion Department which sends a letter to every immigrant who is leaving the country, saying we understand you're leaving, and in a very tactful way we ask why, uh, and if we can help, and this if is... there's a chance we can change his mind, and lots of them appreciate it.
1: This is... You know, I've said this again and again, never ask why in a breakup.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: like... <laughs> <laughs> this is the, like, late-night drunk text of, a fa- of like, this white supremacist country.
0: Yeah, it truly is. So this immigration guy is like, no, 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 they really like that I ask. And they're like, oh, nobody would ever ask. And they apparently found that there were, like, five reasons that all these white settlers were leaving. Um, the first one is that they just never had really cared that much about Rhodesia to begin with. Like, they were just like, oh... I just kind of, like, travel in and out of all of these, like, white European colonial states down here. They're,
1: like, uh, white supremacist, te- like, tourists.
0: Yeah, exactly. They're the- like, oh, Rhodesia's just one of them. Yeah. I'm just drifting in and out. I'm a drifter. Uh, the second is that countries that sent white immigrants to Rhodesia um, never were like, and you can't come back. Yeah. So they were just like, oh, going home's just easy. You know? <laughs> so there's, whatever. Whatever. The third was that um, there was increasing restrictions on political opposition after the Universal Declaration of Independence or the unilateral, sorry, Declaration of Independence was issued. So white residents tended to immigrate when Rhodesia failed to meet their expectations because there was no way for them to voice their concerns.
1: So they were like, I mean, because like the thing about authoritarian states like this is eventually they come like they have to restrict even political speech among, like, the ruling class. Right. Right? Because everyone has to be kind of on board.
0: Right. Exactly. So if you're not kind of on board, you're like, well, it's easier for me to leave than to say I'm not kind of on board.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, The fourth was that the economic and political power of South Africa was attractive to Rhodesian white people... More than Rhodesia,
1: they're like they're really fucking killing it at the apartheid.
0: Yeah, they're like they're just doing it better. So if I care about being a white person in a black country and I want to be the special ruling elite, why wouldn't I go to the place that's doing it better? Yeah. And then the fifth was that the emphasis in Rhodesian immigration promoted um, propaganda, right, about Rhodesia. So when new immigrants came, they were like, "Oh my god, the propaganda I just saw is so real, and um, it's going to be so easy to live here." I'm gonna get so rich. And they got there and they are like, this is not the reality at all.
1: I have to imagine subtext there. You promised me hot chicks. Where yes. are the hot chicks? Where
0: are the hot chicks with the guns? Yeah. I don't see them. Yeah, so a lot of people are leaving, 1977. The fighting, even though they have this two year plan to just like allow free elections, fighting is still continuing between the Rhodesian government and these black African freedom fighters. And apparently it gets so bad that once again, the United States, the UK and the USSR are all forced to take the same side and unilaterally condemn Rhodesia. Uh, You know, and the only other times I can really think about this happening is like Nazi Germany is when the United States and the USSR came together to be like, you are bad. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, the United States doesn't want you to admit that you're building an ethnostate unless you're Israel.
1: Side note, this is I've I'm I'm reading Kim Philby's book.
0: Uh huh.
1: That decision to be like what, you, yes, and with the U.S.S.R. over Nazism, hotly debated among the <laughs> among the
0: Americans. No,
1: among the British Secret Service, oh, like they're like,
0: uh, how are we gonna do this? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this is all I can tell is that Israel. That's the only place where they're allowed to say they're building an ethno state, mm-hmm. and then anywhere else, if you say it, everyone just gets mad.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it seems like mostly because it's like, look, this is not how we do the free market. Like, you can do white supremacy and racism, but you can't, like, you do it in, like, a business-like way.
0: Yes, exactly. And that's what Kissinger was all about. Yeah. Yeah. So on September 29th, 1977, the UN Security Council approves a resolution calling upon the U.S. Uh, the UN, sorry, Secretary General, to appoint a UN Special Representative to assist in this transition to the majority rule free elections in southern Rhodesia. So they're like, remember you promised this to Kissinger, we're helping, we're doing it. And they appoint on October 3rd, Lieutenant General Prem Premchand of India as the UN Special Representative to Rhodesia to facilitate this happening. Even as that is happening, though, that same year, Rhodesia attacks people fighting for their independence three different times and kills over 3000 people.
1: I mean they they got to get their last ones in.
0: I mean literally I'm like what is the point of this? So, 1978, March 3rd, Prime Minister Ian Smith, yes, and Bishop Abel Musorio of the UANC signed an agreement providing for African majority rule finally. Again, this is literally all just to have free fair elections. So
1: this is over a decade of this bullshit. Yeah. Like, just since, like, 65.
0: Yeah, we're looking at 15 years of this literally just to have a fair election.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. So, three days later, though, after they sign this, the Rhodesian government attacks a Zappu base and kills 42 more people, as well as 10 Zambian government soldiers and one Rhodesian government soldier dies. And the UN is like what the fuck are you guys doing? Like, why are you not chilling? And they condemn Rhodesia again. And finally, the government of Rhodesia is like, okay, we're going to lift the ban on Zaku and Zanu in the country. Right? Mm The uh, Mugabe. Yeah. And that's the non-Marxist one. And then Mm -hmm. the Nkomo, the Marxist one. But the fighting still continues for some inexplicable reason. Like, the military does not get the memo that, like, hey, turns out those people, they're not your enemies anymore. This is the country's constituents, and they're allowed to exist here. So Mm -hmm. the military is just still attacking them. So by 1979, the whole world is in what-the-fuck mode. They're like, why are you still attacking these people? Like, do you not understand what's happening? And the Rhodesian Parliament has an election. And the Organization on African Unity, the OAU, declares the Rhodesian election basically to be bullshit. And yeah. is like, you guys held a bullshit election. This is null and void. And the UN Security Council condemns the election. So you kind of see this was their plan all along. Yeah. They're like, yeah, we're totally going to hold a free and fair election. And they're like, oh, we did it. And everyone's like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. There was no way this is a free and fair election. So... Finally, May 4th, 1979, the Rhodesian parliament dissolves.
1: Because they're like, it, it was never anything but, like, a, an organization for settler colonists.
0: Exactly. And yeah. four days later, a new Parliament sworn in. And they're like, okay, we're done. But, so this is not... Is it d-
1: different guys? Well... Same guys. It's the same so- <laughs> guys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> They've got... Josiah Gumede is the president and Bishop Abel Mizorio of the UANC, they form this new government and that, he's the prime minister. But the Organization of African Unity is like, absolutely not. Like, yeah. no, this is not working either. Finally, a ceasefire agreement gets called. And the British and the Americans and the UN all lift their sanctions and embargoes against Rhodesia and they're like, okay, this mm-hmm. all you had to do was stop killing the local population. Just stop doing the genocide. That's all you had to do. Stop massacring people. By this time, though, more than 20,000 people have been killed in this war. One million people in Rhodesia were displaced. And 100,000 people from Rhodesia had fled as refugees to nearby Botswana, Mozambique, and Zambia. And in 1980, Rhodesia officially dies.
1: It's Zimbabwe now.
0: And becomes Zimbabwe. And this whole process, remember, started in 1890. So this is nearly 100 years
1: they were holdouts.
0: They were weird holdouts. And parliamentary elections were held on February 14th through the 29th in 1980. Zanu won 57 out of the 100 seats. That's, that's the non-Marxist. That's Mugabe. Mugabe. So I'm, I'm guessing this is who the United States thoroughly backed in this whole endeavor. And Zappu won 20 seats. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zimbabwe was proclaimed as an independent state officially on April 18th, 1980 and Robert Mugabe formed a Coalition government, which consisted of representatives of the ZANU and the ZAPU, mm-hmm. but we'll see that his kind of allowance of ZAPU to be part of the new government he forms—it's a little weird. It's a little weird. So in 1981, ZANLA and ZIPRA, which were the military wings of both ZANU and ZAPU, right—they merge into the National Armed Forces, November 7th, 1981, and you know who comes to train the new army? Who? North Korea. Oh, nein. That's very interesting. Yeah. So North Korea sent some military advisors to train this new army. Um, but 1983 to 1987, it's it's not going good. Yeah. So Zappu apparently had been planning a secret overthrow of the new government to be fully Marxist-Leninist, which it wasn't. David, you said that Mugabe identified as a Marxist. I
1: mean, this was right, like, again, this is not information that I know a lot about. But I was curious because I would mentioned off-air... That a lot of sort of like third world style academics uh, or like academics who are really interested in the third world like have a lot of good things to say about Mugabe. Uh huh. That I was always like, I'm gonna put a pin in that and learn what what's going on later. Um. So that's the extent. Like I'm learning now.
0: It's very interesting. Um. I think that he. I, I think it's probably not something that was consistent because I looked it up and, yeah, some people were like, he did say sometimes he was a Marxist, but it might have been literally just to unite the Zanu and the Zappu contingencies under his rule and get them on board.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, honestly. It, ma- it
0: makes sense to me, too, um, especially because we know what happened from 1983 to 1987, uh, what Mugabe did. Uh, it's something called the... Uh, Guku Rahundi? Do you know about this? No. Oh, it's so it's so bad. So he says Zappu was planning a secret overthrow of the new government to be fully Marxist-Leninist. And originally he said Guku Rahundi was an ideological strategy aimed at carrying the war into major settlements and individual homesteads. But what ended up happening was genocide, basically. Mm-hmm. So dissidents from Zappu, who were displeased with Mugabe, um, became like the target of the 5th Brigade of the new military, the new ZANU okay. military. The ZAPU was supposed to be absorbed into the ZANU military. It was called the ZANU military. But people from the ZAPU who were perceived to be like holdouts, who weren't really that happy with the new government, they became targets, key they, military targets.
1: So it was a uh, like political persecution kind of massacre. Political persecution,
0: yeah. yes. But also it had some kind of ethnic implications because Zanu had recruited mainly from the Shona people, and ZAPU had been mostly the Ndebele and Kalana people, Kalanga people. sorry. So Mugabe's government utilized Zanu to institute harsh crackdowns on dissent amongst specifically the Ndebele and Kalanga people. Yeah. So they were looking for Zappu leaders, they said, but they also were just attacking regular people who maybe they suspected of being sympathetic, or who were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like, the government soldiers in one example massacred 55 men and women in Lupane, which was a western Zimbabwe area on March 5th, 1983, under the guise of trying to catch Joshua Nkomo, who'd gone into hiding. Um... You know, he had been the head of the Marxist Leninist in of course, in the military wing Zappu. But this was one of many massacres that happened. And the Washington Times talks about this and they said the Mugabe government at the time said it was tracking down a small number of ZAPU dissidents who had not honored the peace deal and were robbing locals. The former guerrillas also had killed six tourists, including two Americans near the town of Victoria Falls. However, reports from churches, non-governmental organizations, and journalists showed that over a period of four years, government forces imposed curfews, burned or bulldozed homes, and herded thousands of civilians into camps, where they were killed and buried in mass graves. Later research by the Catholic Church revealed high levels of torture and rape. Many victims, it said, were bayoneted to death or burned alive. The Church report estimated that 20,000 people died in the action, but a ZAPU Party spokesman said it was at least double that or more. So it's unclear how much the USA knew about this, especially yeah. because we knew they were tacitly supporting Mugabe. And this is one of those things that I'm like, we're going to get some interesting declassified documents in the future, I think. Yeah. Because the international community suspects that the Americans either financially supported this, much like we supported... you know, Argentina,
1: the yeah.
0: Operation Condor or the mm-hmm. genocide uh, that happened in the India and Pakistan situation, you know. So... Lots of people are have been calling on the United States to disclose our involvement in this for years. We don't know if we were involved or how much. Um, a thing we do know, though, is that any Ndebele man of fighting age were considered political dissidents.
1: Oh, that's it, yeah.
0: So it did end up being ethnic-based, yeah. you know, because of that. They were executed often publicly and often after being forced to dig their own graves in front of their family and friends. So... You know, 20,000 to 40,000 civilians, mostly members of the minority and ethnic group, were killed by the government soldiers in Matabeleland province in the 1980s. And the IAGS has classified this as a genocide. And so this is all too familiar a refrain, right? In order to stop the big scary communists, the government needs to apparently commit genocide. Like We heard this in Korea, we heard this in Vietnam, and it would not be shocking if this is something that the United States backed based on our previous history of involvement in other regions doing something similar. In 1985, uh, Zanu won 64 out of 80 seats in the election, ZAPU won 15, and Mugabe suspended Zappu, uh, September 22nd, 1987. But they must have realized that this would just like lead to more conflict in the region. Because uh, later that year, in 1987, Mugabe actually signed something called the Unity Accord with Joshua and Como which provided for the merger of Zanu and Zappu finally into the Zanu-PF, and Joshua Nkomo was appointed appointed vice president of Zimbabwe. Okay. So on April 19th, 1988, President Mugabe announced an amnesty for political dissidents and former rebels, and 122 people surrendered over the next few weeks.
1: And they they nothing bad happened to them?
0: No, apparently okay. not. So something intervened mm. uh, and got Mugabe to just, yeah. like, extend the olive branch, I guess, after committing a literal genocide. So as for how involved the United States had been, The Washington Times also reported for more than a decade before he was toppled in a 2017 coup, Mugabe was barred from travel to most Western nations, including the U.S., over claims of torture, electoral fraud, and killings of political rivals. But... In the years after he took office in 1980, following the overthrow of the white minority rule, Mugabe was a regular visitor to Washington at a time when thousands from the minority Matabele tribe around the southern city of Bulawayo were being killed by a special unit reporting directly to the president. Mm-hmm. So this is why people suspect that the United States had a, rule, a role in maybe supporting...
1: Oh, that makes sense. Like, he happened to be just, like popping up in Washington at the same time that he was committing genocide. Right.
0: So people suspect that the United States was assisting in funding this or Mm -hmm. supplying, you know, weapons for this in some capacity. Um, Yeah. So ultimately, Rhodesia's military had been pretty skilled at crushing the freedom fighters, right, fighting for their own independence. But the reason why Rhodesia fell, which I think is important to note, uh, is that it could not ultimately survive a global boycott. Yeah. That's really what took them out. Um, cutting off Rhodesia's lifeline, which was fuel, oil supplies, it, it ended up forcing the Smith government um, to submit to peace talks in London. That's really what did it. And I think that that's really important for us to remember when we talk about, like, effective ways to fight, like, apartheid states.
1: It's uh, targeted.
0: Targeted boycotts. It has to be targeted.
1: You You can't just say you're doing it in a very general way.
0: Right. Targeted boycotts are effective Mm -hmm. um, or global boycotts. So a global boycott of anything coming out or going into Rhodesia, for example, Mm -hmm. or targeted boycotts of businesses that support these types of interests. So having an organized boycotting system, it really does work. And this is something we saw also work ultimately in South Africa.
1: Yeah, I uh, somewhere I... I know like I was talking to a friend of the family from that generation and he pulled out some buttons that were like targeted boycotts against certain technology companies from South Africa that from his time. Yeah. Protesting South African genocide. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So targeted boycotts do work. And also when it comes to decolonization um, by the year 2000, remember there had been like maybe a quarter of a million white people in mm-hmm. Zimbabwe, that number had dropped to 40,000. So, most people just decolonized themselves.
1: Yeah, I, I have to imagine that it was just sort of like, well, this, like, the whole reason we were here was to do this like, you know, settler colonialist thing. That's not working. I guess we'll leave.
0: Yeah, we'll leave. Exactly. But, the legacy of Rhodesia, which we touched on earlier, it's just become this like glory point in global history for white supremacists
1: it feels i mean realistically a they lost b it feels like the kind of thing that extraordinarily online meme white supremacists yeah who are often extraordinarily violent and have like real world consequences obviously yeah but it seems like a certain kind of like weird internet radical right-wing guy
0: yeah well you mentioned dylan roof and that's a great example Uh, american white supremacist murderer um he posted his manifesto on a website that was literally called the last rhodesian and he posted pictures of himself wearing a jacket with rhodesia flag patches on it it's like a green and white rhodesian flag and you're right when you said it's wild that the white supremacists cling to this because rhodesia lost and in the same way the confederacy lost so these bastions of like white supremacist white supremacist colonial endeavors that people want to cling to within those communities and be like these were the glory days it's like well they failed these are not great examples of your cause these i, are mean, people who I fail. think
1: that right like you know if you want to speculate wildly about the psychology <laughs> of this kind of thing right like this is like the fucking Faulkner thing this is right it's the like lost cause that's heroic because it's a lost cause crazy logic
0: yeah banana's logic. logic
1: but right like that's the the thing is like oh my god i can participate in this like heroic i can like remember like our fallen heroes
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah the thing that's really interesting though is that in the last five years along with people being like nostalgic for this violent type of white failed white supremacy there's also been like merch like merch has popped up for it like there's all these online clothing stores and accessory stores that started selling like rhodesia merch like there are shirts and hoodies that say make zimbabwe rhodesia again Um, There's merch that gets sold with the Rhodesian army slogan on it, which is be a man among men. Um, There's also this place called the Western Outland Supply Company, which is listed by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a white nationalist hate group that sells Rhodesia-themed products. Um, There's also this, like, really, really bad phrase that's basically the Rhodesian equivalent of saying shoot N-words, and that's, like, a phrase that is posted on Clothes Everywhere. So if you ever see something that says slot and then it's like a word that starts with f that apparently is a slur in the region uh for black people like slot s-l-o-t and then the second word starts with an f that is like uh, basically saying you want to kill black people um ironically like this news report tracked down the owner of one of these little online clothing companies and it ended up being a Canadian man of Chinese descent, and they were like, "Why are you selling this white supremacist merch?" And he's like, "Honestly, I didn't even know what it was. I was just trying to make a little bit of extra money."
1: Just drop shipping.
0: Yeah, he was like just drop shipping random shit. Um, but this stuff is popular in the minds of these white supremacists today. And like Heidi Beric, who was the head of the Southern Poverty Law Center's intelligence projects, explained this and said, "There's this increase in popularity around Rhodesia as a symbol for white power." Because all the talk right now among people in the alt-right and the broader white supremacist movement is about the need for a white ethnostate. And this was them trying to found a a white ethnostate, even though it failed. And it's really interesting because I feel like all colonization efforts really are the effort to form a white ethnostate. But Rhodesia under Ian Smith was maybe one of the few that said, no, we're doing a white ethnostate explicitly and didn't dance around it.
1: Yeah, I mean... It it seems like the explicitness tends to come about when the sort of, like, hegemonic white supremacist power is in any way, even in the most mild or moderate way, challenged. Like, you have to assert it the most the second that power is challenged.
0: Right, which is why you had the ads that are like, come to Rhodesia and yeah, find sexy wimp- sexy white blonde women with guns. You like really start appealing to people's like base instincts because you have no rational argument.
1: No, I mean, I think a, a way of putting this might be something like, you don't have to state what is already assumed.
0: Oh, I see, I see. So, But at a certain point, you're like, no, 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 guys, come. Yeah. We're doing white supremacy. You love white supremacy. Come on.
1: And... Here right like all of that like sort of white man's burden all of the sort of like kipling posts or like you know british empire at its height kind of stuff definitely talked about race and it definitely did racism but it didn't have to stay out right like it's sort of like violent murderous regime because that was already just assumed right. that was the background
0: very yeah i think that's true i think that is very interesting Huh. Well, do you have any final thoughts about Rhodesia?
1: No, I think. I mean. Good to know about the hoodies or whatever with the weird racist slogan. But, like. You
0: guys can spot some dog whistles if you see them.
1: I, like. I get. You know, I have. Some thoughts that I have not yet formulated about what happens to sort of, like, specifically post-colonial power and how that, like, the, like, actual post-Rhodesia stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, that I'm sort of interested to think through. Um,
0: I I know. It is really interesting to consider. I just am so desperate to know the nature of U.S. involvement because it just, if you know anything about how the United States gets involved in regime changes, it just reeks of U.S. involvement somehow. Yeah. And all I could do is speculate. And it seems like a lot of people have also speculated that there might be something there. And I don't know if we'll ever get the answers that we're looking for. I mean,
1: you know, the the CIA has their little website, which is the most obnoxious website to navigate in, in the world. And eventually, like, maybe one day someone will get bored or they'll be like, look, man, we're not driving enough traffic to our website. We gotta, we gotta release the Rhodesia shit.
0: Release the Rhodesia records. Should I spend the final few moments trying to search for Rhodesia on the CIA's reading room? I'm sure. Let's see if anything comes up. I mean, I know things will come up on Rhodesia. Oh my god, it popped up right away. There it is. Because I had been searching. <laughs> Let's see how much info there is. If you, too, want to go to CIA.gov readingroom reading home, you can do a query, you can search, and you will find everything that's been released under the Freedom of Information Act. There currently are over 10 pages of documents pertaining to Rhodesia, so if you want to learn more, do a deep dive in that. Let's see what's happening there, and I'll do some uh, reading of my own on my own time, too.
1: I, I love how you have become sort of an advertisement for the CIA web page.
0: I'm obsessed. I'm yeah. so obsessed with it. You know, it's not a bad thing to be obsessed uh, with. It, it's gotten to the point where the, apparently the reading room was down one day, and I got a bunch of notifications on my TikTok. People were like, did you see the reading room was down? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I didn't go on today, but I'm so glad you thought of me first. All right, well. That's it. That's our episode on Rhodesia. If you want the supplementary material about the man who started it all, Cecil Rhodes, join us over on our Patreon. Uh, And if not, that's okay, too. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can find us there at patreon.com slash pickmeupimescared. For $3 a month, you can access bonus content there. But if 3 bucks a month is too much for you to spend right now, we totally get it and we're just happy you're here. As always, you can find the sources for this week's episode just by scrolling down a bit in the description.